0: Hello, and welcome to episode 116 of the long-delayed Tennis Abstract podcast. My name is Jeff Sackman from TennisAbstract.com. Today's episode is focused on my Tennis 128 project, which has been unrolling throughout the year 2022. I've been counting down the 128 best players of the last 100 years, from Beverly Baker Flights all the way down to Rod Laver uh, with an, a long-form essay on each and every one of them. Labor was number one, and I posted that essay a few days ago. And to celebrate, mark something the end of the project, I am now doing a presumably pretty long and super fun podcast with Carl Bialik. Um, We've been collecting questions from, from readers, from people on Twitter, on message boards. Carl, I know, has some things he wanted to ask me. I even made up a few questions to ask myself. So basically, we're going to do this in an interview format. Um, So, Carl, thanks so much for putting this together and sorting through the questions. And thanks for joining me. And take it away.
1: Thank you, Jeff. It's an honor. And I've really enjoyed reading these essays. I've been, as you know, hitting refresh on the site to, to catch the last 10 or so. And especially impressed how many of them you posted even ahead of your announced deadline, which is a rare thing for a writer. So congratulations, really honored to be able to talk to you about it and ask you some of the things that I've been wondering while I've been reading the series. But mostly these are questions from other people, including, as you said, questions from you to you. And I'm gonna get to them very quickly because we have so many of them. We're we're gonna try to get to 128 of them because we have even more than that and that's after i've edited and combined some of the questions that were pretty similar uh because a lot of people had a lot of the same things on their minds uh i I do just want to orient people we i have organized these into sections and this will hopefully follow somewhat of a logical progression based on what people have been interested in and what you would need to know about to understand things later on i do recommend if you haven't read you know some or all of the series you'll probably want to do that but you can definitely listen to this before you have, and then your appetite will be even greater for these incredible essays about tennis history. Uh, With some of these sections, including about how Jeff ranked these players, then how he researched and wrote about them, there are a lot of questions. We're definitely not gonna get to all of them, but to be fair, we're gonna use some uh, randomization to choose which ones we get. So I'll be uh, pausing between questions just to figure out which one is next based on a random number generator. Jeff has also promised or threatened to turn the tables on me occasionally. So you might hear me try to answer some of the questions he just answered or a related one. And just to give you a sense of where we're starting and where we're going, we're gonna start with a few questions just to lay out quickly how Jeff selected and ranked these 128 players. And then we're gonna finish with some more overview, summarizing kind of questions about the project. And in between, hopefully we'll touch on a lot of your pressing questions. So, Jeff, you ready?
0: I am ready. And I'll just say you mentioned um, before we started recording that I could feel free to pass on questions. But instead of passing, if there's any questions that I don't want to answer, I'm just going to type them into ChatGPT uh, and read the AI generated response instead. So, if there are any responses of mine that feel particularly bland or you don't like, then that's probably why.
1: Yeah, some of these are like, hey, Jeff, just casually, can you answer this question that would probably take months or years of statistical analysis? So I hope Jeff just wildly speculates or invents answers, but maybe the AI will instead. I did try to get the AI to suggest questions and it made up a whole alternate tennis history that we'll have to explore in some other episodes. So mostly, as far as I know, these are either human generated or passed along by people from the AI. Okay, number one, Jeff. What is and isn't your ranking system concisely? And specifically, lay out what the three elements are that go into rating and ranking the players.
0: Okay, so it's entirely ELO based. So to, to rank every player, what I needed to have was their, their peak ELO rating and their, their year-end ELO ratings for every season in which they played 15 or more matches. And I'm guessing most, of, most listeners know what ELO is all about. The basic idea is it's just a rating system that updates after every match and goes up if you win, goes down if you lose, goes up or down depending on the quality of the opponent that you're playing. Um, what you'll notice is I said nothing about round. I said nothing about the type of tournament. I said nothing about grand slams. Um, nothing about anything other than, nothing about surface, nothing other than who you play and how good they are. That's it. And in general, you'll find that ELO ratings are pretty close to what you expect from traditional computer rankings, the the official ATP, WTA rankings, and just general common sense. Like, the the highest ranked players in history are Labor, Djokovic, Federer, Serena, Martina Navratilova. Like, the... The numbers are, in, in broad strokes, what you'd expect. However, it, it does end up um, working against players who had a few highlights at Grand Slams um, but didn't play that well otherwise, uh, or players who... Yeah, I guess it's streaky players cut both ways. I won't go down too far down that rabbit hole. But once you have the peak ELO and, um, and year-end ELOs for every player, my algorithm for rating players weighted three different components roughly equally, one of which was a player's peak, one of which was their performance over their five best years, and one of the, which was a career component, which would reward longevity. So it takes into account every every season in a player's career where they had an, a year-end ELO over 1,900, which is roughly the threshold of the top 20. Uh, it's not the same every year, but um, somewhere around there. So what I did then is... I generated lists of um, the top 150 to 200 players of men, top 150 to 200 players for women, and and then for every one of those Elo scores, their peaks, their their career ratings, I converted those into percentiles. So you're going to have three numbers like for instance labor is basically a 100th percent or 99.9th percentile for peak 75th percentile for um the best five years 80th percentile for the for the career uh average those and that basically gives you a score for the player it's a little bit more complicated than that because I, I i mixed the percentiles with ordinal rankings uh but what what the that final step does is it it treats every player as relative to the greatest players of their gender. Um, so if labor is like labor's overall score with everything I mixed in there was roughly 0.8, so 80th, averaging out of the 80th percentile. That puts him ahead of Steffi at 79 percentile. So it, it puts men and women on the same scale, and I'm guessing that answers some questions that come later. But that's the basic idea. That it's all it, it's all Elo based. It tries to um, come to some sensible weighting of peak and career accomplishments. And that's about enough for an overview, I think.
1: I think it partially answers this next one, but I still want to check if there's more to say about why those three elements why tuned the way they were in terms of how many years. Were there you call them components? Were there other components you considered, other sort of twists on Elo or some other measure that you rejected? Uh, was this based on some other system? Why these three and not others?
0: The and I also might be jumping ahead to other questions now too, but one thing I found was that there are there were a handful of players who were very very sensitive to changes in the algorithm, um, especially the players who. Uh, were very peaky for whatever reason, like Maureen Connolly, who had a motorcycle not a motorcycle, a horse riding accident when she was 19. So she had a very short career. Monica Seles would have a short career at the top. Uh, because they were very strong in peak and and not as strong career for reasons out of their control, um, they bounced around a lot based on on what components you chose. So for instance, for a long time, instead of using peak ELO, I was using um, the best year-end elo of someone's career, and that sounds like it would generally be about the same. On the other hand, most players' peaks just, I mean, logically, this makes sense, are not going to be at the end of the year. I mean, only one twelfth of players are going to have peaks at the at the end of the year, probably maybe less. So, um, by using peak elo, you really you really literally capture a player's peak, which is important and. and I think gave more deserved credit to the players who did have a very extreme peak, like Connell Um, I tried all sorts of different, different numbers of years for the intermediate component. I think when I first started, all I used was a peak rating and a career rating. And then I found that it was, it was giving too much weight to career. Um, and I needed to have something else that was, peaky, but not super peaky. So I started out with a, with, with a peak, a best three years and a career component. And then I ended up trying a bunch of years and seeing, seeing what works out. And I, I should say like, the, I would, I would say maybe three quarters or more of the rankings look about the same, no matter what you do. Cause you know, I, I talk about this career versus peak um, distinction, but most of the players with the best peaks have the best careers. I mean, the best the best peak is labor. The best women's peak is, is Steffi Graf. And those are players who had obviously tremendous careers. So there's not a huge difference. It's only in the players where there is a bigger difference where it really matters. So if I had picked different components, the list wouldn't look that different. Uh, you could, of course, I mean, there's a million ways of, of generating greatest of all time rankings but once your list goes very deep a lot of the traditional components like grand slams grand slam finals masters titles year-end ranking highlights whatever they are uh, you start to end up with these massive ties of zero <laughs> like people there aren't that many players who who won more than one slam or Finished a year at, at number one, and also the further back you go in history, the the less those things are coherent. So I mean, slam totals mean something different for Labour than they do for Djokovic, and year-end number ones were determined by random sports writers who basically just wrote a column and said, I think this woman is number one this year. So a lot of the components that make a lot of sense if you're having a Twitter argument about Nadal versus Djokovic. They make no sense at all if you're comparing Federer versus Tilden. So really the only thing that you can look at that's even close to the same for 100 years is just match results. And I think by far and away the best way of evaluating match results is with ELO. So I just as that background step, that's how I got to the point where just I took for granted that ELO is going to be the best and possibly only way to do this.
1: Okay, that's really helpful. And I'm glad you're also naming some some real players and talking about their their stories and their history because that's such a rich part of this project and we're going to get to it. But because there's so much interest in the selection, the ranking and the larger discussions around the best players, somebody asked, is the 128 your answer to the GOAT debate?
0: I mean, I, I guess so, yeah. I mean, like I say, there's a, a ton of ways to 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 evaluate players. Like, if if I'd started this year trying to answer the question of who are the best players of the Open Era, then obviously I would have ended up with a different list, just because it would have been shorter, and I would have had to treat Laver and Rosewall differently. Uh, but I might have I might have used different inputs, just because the the priorities of the Open Era are so different than the priorities of say before World War Two. And I also, I'm mean, i I'm not so arrogant as to say like this is the this is the end of the story or this is the best way to do it. Like I don't think there's a better way to do it, but I also don't expect everyone to agree with me or to agree with my priorities. Like this this, is, this satisfies me <laughs> as as a ranking. I, uh, I I hope that that most listeners and readers have an open enough mind to say like. Even though the player I think deserves me on the list, isn't on the list, I still think this is a, a, a worthwhile approach to thinking about things, or it's a, a worthwhile check on what my assumptions were. But I mean, uh, I'm not. It's enough for me, um, but I don't. I don't ever think we're gonna have like an end answer to questions like this.
1: All right, Jeff. I think this is a great uh, overview of, of how you did it. We have a lot of kind of more specific or more offbeat questions about the algorithm, so many that I'm going to randomly select from among them. Um, so we've, we've done three, let's, let's do some more about the algorithm before we move on. All right. Are there ways you'd consider improving the algorithm?
0: Basically, no. I mean, and, and that's, again, not because I'm trying to be arrogant about it, but because I spent a month or two before I started publishing articles uh, going through that thought process so like, i i don't know how many draft lists i went through and how many how much code i wrote and how many different algorithms i tested but it was a lot um and a, a lot of variations don't really matter a lot of them give you results that are just wacky and obviously are wrong uh, so so again this isn't this isn't the be all or end all but i uh, I don't know if there's a better way. I, I mean, if, if you wanted to make people happier, then you'd probably figure out a way to get grand slams in there somewhere. Um, but I don't. That's not my goal, and it also is not very historically accurate because grand slam can mean different things now than they did 100 years ago. So, so no. I mean, it's, it's. I feel like this would be a bad answer if this were like a job interview question. But I, I don't think there's there's a lot of a lot of ways to improve it unless you're trying to do something different.
1: Okay. Next question do suzanne langlin and bill tilden have a disadvantage in the algorithm compared to modern players because there weren't a lot of established players with deep in quotation marks i don't know exactly what that's supposed to mean but with deep elo rankings for them to be
0: yes and no i mean if if i had if i had stopped with the algorithm that i described a few minutes ago then yes absolutely Uh, especially longland i mean Longland's level of competition is extremely difficult to evaluate because there wasn't a ton of tennis on the continent. I mean, there was a lot of tennis on the continent. There wasn't a lot of super competitive tennis on the continent in her era. Um, there were, it, I think, the level of play was higher in the U.S. and it there just weren't a ton of women who were really dedicated to tennis for many years of their life. So. W- it's it's super impressive that Longland won 180 matches in a row or whatever she did, but some number of those don't really count in the sense that w- we would talk about winning streaks nowadays. So very difficult to evaluate. Um, what I did for Tilden and Longland and a, a handful of other players, including Wills, Connolly, and Marble, I might be forgetting one, but there's a there's an algorithm. I talked about it a little bit in the the Longland article and mentioned it again with Nadal. I developed it for Nadal a few years ago, um, where at some point, if a player is is winning all the time, literally all the time, or very, very close, then ELO doesn't capture how good they could possibly be. ELO just basically gives you a lower bound of how good a player has to be to record all these victories. So if they're on, on 100, a 180-match winning streak like Longlin, or they're winning you know, 10 years in a row at a certain tournament like Nadal does, then ELO doesn't quite do the job. And my alternative algorithm for that was to try to answer the question of, based on the, the players this person beat and the number of matches they won, in, which might be you know, 180 out of know, 180 or 79 out of 80, um, how good would a player have to be in ELO terms to, ac- to accomplish that 50% of the time? So, I mean, we're not going to say that long limb is so good that in 100 alternative universes, she would go 180 and 0, 100 times out of 100. But we're also not going to say it was luck that she did it. So we'll say 50, 50% of the time she would accomplish that. And if you just use the sort of naive elo for suzanne Longlin in 1921 when she was playing a lot of these women we don't know a lot about i mean we can i'm not sure if this is what your what the questioner meant by deep elo but i i don't have records going back all the way to like the 1890s and a lot of these women we don't have all the data on their careers so there were a lot of women longland was beating we don't know a lot about so maybe that's because they weren't good maybe it's because we just don't have the data but longlands elo isn't super high if you just look at the naive elo but if you run this alternative algorithm i'm talking about then longlands best seasons helen wills's best seasons they were in the 2500 range so they were up there with most of the best seasons of Navratilova or Graf. graph um, so that adjustment is i mean that's how they end up in the top 15. if you don't do that then then they're a lot lower but i think you have to i mean partly for the the reason that this question is is asking about and um, whether it's because of the missing data or just the the world was so different, because the fact that they were so dominant means that we can't we can't quite capture what they accomplished just by looking at the players they beat.
1: That's really helpful. And someone else had asked about the the Rafa methodology, so uh, interesting to hear who it who it applied to and and what the effect was. And I should add, I didn't use it for Rafa. Um,
0: th- the line basically was. It, I, I didn't do like a, a, a full research project on this, but in general, the alternative methods seem to seem to not make much of a difference. Once a player loses three or four matches in a season, So if you go, you know, 60 and three, then obviously it's a great season, unless it's happening in 1920, ELO is going to capture how great it is. Uh, so I mean, Djokovic's mean, best season. Federer's best season. I- ELO does a great job of telling us how great it is. Um, uh, 65 and 0, that's a different story so if, if you want to talk about how great nadal is on clay you need to go to the alternative approach but that isn't what this is about um i, I didn't i didn't focus on surfaces specifically so it was re- it was really only i think the five players i named till and longland wills Connolly, and marble who had long stretches of being undefeated or close that meant i had to adjust the their results accordingly
1: kind of in the same vein of the algorithm meets maybe other information did you change any rankings based on what you were finding after you started to research players this is question number six by the way
0: (laughs) we're racing through these uh very little i asked joe pozanski that same question when i talked to him at the beginning of the year his his baseball 100 was a huge inspiration for me to do this and he said not at all he he made his list and he was done um I did very little of that i mean t- technically i made those wills in longland and tilton adjustments later on but i mean I, I planned to make them i just didn't get around to it until a few months ago um so in a sense th- those weren't late i i feel like there were a couple of of players that i bumped up a little bit um in the first few months so at, around 100 or even lower and i, I it was often very tempting in the beginning because there were a lot of players I didn't know a ton about. So when you research someone for the first time, you're like, wow, he won this US Open and did it in such a dominating fashion. I never even heard about that. It's very tempting to say, he must be better than 117th of all time or whatever. Uh, and of course, once you do that, there's no there's no end to it. You start bumping up everybody. So I didn't do that for that reason, uh, however much I wanted to. I think the only times I bumped people up a few steps were when i was doing the research if i discovered there was data missing that the algorithm couldn't capture um i might be jumping ahead another to another question again but our our data for men's tennis before world war ii isn't as complete as after or for women in that time period so um i don't remember whether i bumped up vinnie richards but that's one name that comes to mind um Bill Johnston is one. I didn't bump him up. He's number 118 on the list, but you could easily argue for him to be higher. Uh, Those are the those are the possibilities. But in general, I, I followed Joe's rule. And once I made the list, I stuck with it. There was there was enough else to do without fretting over whether the list was right at that point.
1: Okay, this one was not selected randomly, but is very connected. And a few people asked it. Some players did get a bump for off-court contributions in Legacy. Is that right? And if so, could you say more about who they were and and how much of an effect it was?
0: I, I probably should edit my introduction to take that out because that was my that was my intent when I started the project. Um, and I basically didn't do that. Um, I I actually wish I'd made better notes because I think again in the in say the last fifty players or so there were a few cases where where players were were very close to each other, like essentially tied. Like, I mean, all all of my my numbers, I could take them out to like the sixth decimal place, so there are technically no ties. But there were a few cases where someone was was roughly tied, and I think I think I give Kitty Godfrey a little bit of a bump, partly because of the the data and because she was a, a doubles queen. Um, I don't remember any other instances. It might have there might have been no other ones. The only other instances where I bumped players, well. I guess there, there are two, Aura Washington and, and Carol Kajula. Um, The data just doesn't exist, so I had to place them in manually. I mean, it wasn't a matter of bumping. It was a matter of, of placing them based on my best estimates. But um, in the cases of Pauline Betts and Althea Gibson um, and maybe one or two other players who I'm forgetting right now, because there were so few opportunities for women to play professionally, Those are two women who wanted to play professionally, did play professionally, and were very, very good when they were deprived of opportunities to play professionally. And Pauline Betts is a a clear example because she had a few years where she played a handful of pro matches and generally won them all. So it seems both churlish and outright wrong to say, sorry, Pauline, you only played nine matches against a really great player and you went nine and oh, my minimum is 15. You don't get credit for this season. Uh, I'm not ready to do that partly because I really like Pauline Betts, but partly cause, just because it seemed wrong. So both of them gained some places on the list that weren't strictly in keeping with what the algorithms spit out. I did feel like it was in keeping with the spirit of the algorithm um, to say like all the evidence that the era would allow us to have says that they were really great players in those years along the same lines as in adjacent years. So I bumped them up accordingly. You could do a lot more for Althea Gibson, and that's a whole other story that I went into a little bit in the essay itself. I tried not to go beyond what there was a pretty strong um, evidentiary basis for, but, uh, but those are the two top 50 names who, who benefited from, from me intervening.
1: All right, jumping to question number eight, this is combining a few in this vein. uh, How soon, slash, if at all, will you be putting kind of all the numbers that went into the rankings on the website or sharing otherwise, including the pre-open era men's ELO ratings that aren't currently on player pages?
0: Okay, so two separate things there. One, this is super embarrassing, but um, I have... I, I, I stored all this data through the process of testing the algorithm. And somehow the one thing that I do not have or cannot find is the components of my final ranking. <laughs> so I have like version minus two, version minus three, all the way back to all sorts of other things I tested. I have a lot of the components. I probably have the code to regenerate most of this stuff, but uh, but I do not have um, those numbers at my fingertips. So it will take some work to post them. I I should be able to regenerate them pretty much in a pretty straightforward manner, but I'll have to do that first. And that doesn't sound like a ton of fun, so I'm not sure when that will happen. As for ELO ratings for for pre-open era men, that's again a whole nother can of worms. I I do have them. um, Outside of the very top players, I don't love what I have for pre-World War II. Because of some of the data issues I mentioned before, um, and also, the like I I could publish the database that I have, um, but it doesn't integrate really neatly with Tennis Abstract because I haven't matched I've matched all, I've matched all the the tennis 128 and close players um, from like the the player records I have for them before the Open Era and then the ones I have for the Open Era that are on the website. Uh, but basically, it's a whole ton of database drudge work to integrate them onto the Tennis Abstract website. So I probably won't post any ELO ratings or any of the results I have for, for pre-open era men until I've done a lot more work. And I, I would like to say that's soon, but honestly, it's not soon. Maybe I'll figure out some way I'm happy with to publish other numbers, but then that comes back to the the, the fact that we're missing some data and I'd like to improve it. I, I don't love posting ELO ratings or anything else when I know that you know, I'm going to dig up more data and that's going to tweak the ratings. So it, it could be a while. I, I re, I'm glad people are interested and I hope to have them up someday, but it's not going
1: to be soon. I'm uh, just going to do a couple more from this section because we have two more algorithm-related batches that I want to choose from. So number nine, you, you said that you, know, you stand by your methodology, you can't think of a better one. Do you feel any differently about it overall as a methodology after doing all the research and writing about the players as you felt about it when you first got the list?
0: Not really. Um, no, I mean, if, if anything, there's probably some... Is this confirmation bias? I think this is confirmation bias. That when I was writing about every player, I, I wasn't trying to justify their position on the list. That would be really boring. But I did start to... Associate every player with their position on the list, and like I was very aware of who was surprising. Um, and then, if I wasn't aware of whether someone was surprising, the denizens of the internet quickly made me aware of who was surprising or or apparently wrong. So. I wasn't trying to justify the choices, but I kind of ended up doing that in my head. Like, if, if I got to someone like Conchita Martinez at number 45, I knew from before this whole thing started that no one's going to expect Conchita Martinez to be in the top 50. And I didn't go about it. I didn't try to write an article to say, here is why Conchita Martinez really is in the top 50. But I was thinking about it in those along those lines. Um, just, be, I mean, I, I felt like it was only natural to do that. And... That meant that of all the people who have ever studied Conchita Martinez's career, I'm probably the one who's most likely to think of her at number 45, just because that's what I associate her with. Uh, outside of the most extreme, um, the most extreme placements, like like Conchita Martinez being one, one thing that surprised me getting feedback from the, the rest of the world was that h- how few of my placements really were that radical. Um, there were some that I thought were, were really out there that once I got to the top 50, a number of people started sending me their own lists. And I would say that of the top 50 players on my list, at least 40 of them, probably 45 or more, I got another list where the player was higher and another list where the player was lower. So (laughs) I was not the most extreme choice for almost anybody. Uh, And, and Concina Martinez is one. Gabriella Sabatini, I think, is another. But there weren't very many. So I, I was pleasantly surprised by that. Like I, I know that if you if you go by what people on Twitter and and, and internet forums are saying, there's some some choices that are obviously wrong, that are obviously too high or obviously too low. But the, there's no consensuses, except maybe that Conchita Martinez isn't as good as I think. But uh, there are virtually no consensuses in the, the conventional wisdom on this stuff. So, I mean, I'm happy with my list. I'm I, I'm probably happier with it now than I was at the beginning of the year, just because I've I've learned more about every player, and I can I can see the positives and negatives in every case much more than I I could a year ago.
1: So we're going to do a couple more from this section, one randomly selected and then one that just a lot of people asked in various ways. So first, the randomly selected one also on a lot of people's minds, I think, though, you said early on notice that, you know, I haven't mentioned what round, what tournament That elo, that's not important to ELO about a match. What's important is who beat who. So is that a weakness? Uh, could you see that being a weakness? So the, the example cited by one of the people who asked this is uh, Sonego beating Djokovic in the round of 16 of a 250. I think it was actually a 500 a few years ago that they're probably thinking of. But um, is it? does it make sense to weight that the same when deciding on the best of the last 100 years? Well, it depends what your goal is. It seems like the
0: obvious answer is no, they shouldn't be weighted the same. Like. Senego treats that match differently, Djokovic treats that match differently, everyone treats that match differently. Therefore, if we're trying to determine how great Djokovic is, we don't weight it the same way as a match that he would treat differently. So, that's one argument and that is an argument for the weakness of the algorithm. The counterargument is that if that were true, if we if we take it as a given that the that the round of 16 match counts for less then we should be able to come up with a better ELO algorithm that is more predictive, that weights those matches less. And that is not true. So what that basically means is, yes, those matches don't matter as much. Yes, everyone agrees they don't matter as much. Presumably every player approaches them differently, but the likely outcome is the same. So what we learn from the outcome is the same. And I know that's super counterintuitive. Um, I can feel every listener shaking their heads or getting angry or driving their car off the road or something, hopefully not. But and I realize people are going to disagree with me and try to hopefully try to prove me wrong. I and mean, I'd love to see a, a good study of why that's right or wrong beyond what I've done myself. But um, I've pretty consistently found that, that you, you cannot improve ELO by looking at the situation of the match. I mean, if you could, I would do it. Uh, the extreme example of that, which I, I keep coming back to, I never would have expected this would be one of my like touchstone mini studies is I looked at the results from the IPTL um, exhibition season from, I don't know, I want to say 2017, but some year around then. And I wanted to know how predictive ELO was of the results in that, uh, that season. Cause I assume like their exhibition matches, players don't really care. You're you're not gonna be able to predict the outcome of those matches as well as you would other more important matches, if at all. And that was true to some extent. I think they were something like 30% less predictable than regular tool level, level level matches. But ELO still did an awfully good job. Like those matches were still awfully predictable. So I'm not gonna put IPTL or other other exhibition matches into the MA for calculations like this. That, I don't know whether they would have any value at all beyond what we already know about players. But the, the point is is that even when players don't care as much, even when matches aren't as important, what we learn from those matches is basically the same. Uh, so that's why I did it the way I did. I, 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 I'm pretty confidently standing behind that, even if it is very counterintuitive.
1: Thank you. Now, you, you also talked earlier about the percentile system and, and how this also made it, Uh, simpler or more straightforward to put men and women basically on the same scale and forming the list. And there's, I don't remember the, it's almost exactly 64, 64. Why in the first place put men and women on the same list? Lots of people had this question.
0: Well, I I don't know whether anyone had this, that question other than the fact that they thought it was stupid. Uh, That was the most common feedback I got that it was stupid to put men and women on the same list.
1: Remember Uh, the questions have been edited. (laughs)
0: Thank you. Um, well, for, for one thing, this this is not a, this is not a good logical answer, but it's how I wanted to do it. Like to me, tennis is a mixed gender sport. Like I, I'm not a men's tennis fan. I'm not a women's tennis fan. I'm a tennis fan. Um, depending on the year, I might love one circuit more than the other, but I, I love them both equally and they had more than any other sport. By far, I think, they've always been treated as equals. Maybe that's that's a stretch they've been treated as equals. But, I mean, even in all the years that women's tennis was considered a second-class sport, women's tennis was at Wimbledon, at Forest Hills, at all the other major tournaments, basically. Um, Mixed doubles has always been a huge part of the sport, more so in its early years than it is now. Um, And later on, thanks to Billie Jean King and others, like for 50 years now, it's been – in various ways closer, getting closer to, to being equal in ways that virtually no sport is. So it, it, if you're ever gonna do a list like this, mixing men, and women, tennis is the time to do it. Uh, and the other reason is that you can't, if you're going to take on a project like this, then you can only compare players to their own era. So if you're comparing Djokovic to Tilden, the only way you can do it is compare them to their eras, how much they dominated their own their own competition there's really no other way to do it. Like you you can't look at the speed of serve or the spin on their backhand or whether they would, who would win if they played each other. Those are completely unanswerable questions. Uh, So you have to look at how people compete against their, or how people manage against the competition. And once you take that leap, then I don't see why you can't compare men and women. Like if, if you can compare Djokovic and Tilden, why can't you compare Djokovic and Serena or, Djokovic and Helen Wills, like it's the it's the same thing. I mean, the the fields are composed of different mixes of players and country mixes and skill level mixes are, are different. And women didn't tend to stick around as long in in the early years. so There are differences, but those differences are pretty small compared to the similarities. So I wouldn't say like anything you can convert into a percentile ranking you should compare. I mean, I wouldn't compare the best tennis players to the best soccer players, but it, it, I was really surprised by the by how strongly people felt that you shouldn't com- combine men and women in a list, because to me, it's obvious that you can. So it's, I mean, everything I've said is just sort of post hoc justification. Like, obviously, you'd compare men and women. If you're making a list of the best tennis players, of course, there's going to be men and women, and probably there should be the same number of each.
1: And if it really bugs someone, they can make two separate lists of the top 60, whatever, best men, top 60, whatever, best women. And then no, that's, they that's can not be allowed. Heavy. Okay, not allowed. We'll, we'll edit that out. Um, okay, I'm going to move to questions about other ranking systems, which are implicitly about your algorithm as well. But um, these two are going to be randomly selected. We're just going to do a couple before we move on. So... Who is the most underrated player in tennis history?
0: Conchita Martinez. No, um, although she's up there, I don't know. That's tough, it, and, and partly it's tough because I, like I said before with all the lists that I've, I've received in the last few months, it, it seems like there should be a conventional wisdom about who is rated high and who is not, and it's, it's not as consensus as you think. Um, one name that comes to mind is Ken Rosewall. Uh, I mean, I, one of the people who sent me a list put him in number one or two, so he's not universally underrated. But the fact that his career was was divided the way it was, uh, and the fact that he was so so old by the time the open era came around, like, that, there's a lot of things combining to underrate him. And another one is right next to him on the list, of Venus Williams, um, because of I mean, obvious reasons, because she essentially played most of her career in Serena's Shadow. Uh, and ultimately Serena went on to accomplish even more like she's the she's not even the best player in her own family but she's still awfully good in the the grand scheme of things so it I think I even mentioned that in my article that I, I thought she was universally underrated and a couple people did say they, they told me they didn't feel like it was the wrong place on her for the for her on the list like they, they felt felt like they had personally rated her there so again that's not a there's not a consensus there but I think that the average fan uh underrates her. The only other name that comes to mind offhand is is Frank Kovacs, who was number 110 on my list. And I think that the first section of that essay, I listed all the reasons why a player might be underrated. Uh and he didn't win a slam. Uh, he, his career was cut short by, by World War II. He went pro earlier than he probably would have otherwise. He played, spent his entire career in the shadow of Bobby Riggs, which is kind of hard to do since Bobby Riggs was so short. Um, he never played Davis Cup at a time, and that really mattered. Like Everything you can do to be underrated, he did. Uh, some of it was his own fault, but he, it was all true. So, I mean, Frank Kovacs isn't one of the very greatest players of all time, but I'm not sure anyone else making a list would put him in the top 110 like I did, and those are some of the reasons why. And you can apply a lot of those reasons to to other players. The the no slam thing is, is very big. Not playing Davis Cup um, is a really big deal for for pre-open era guys. So I mean that that's a way of thinking about it. But I feel like Rosewall and Venus is a, a, a are good men and women answers to that question.
1: And this really did come up randomly, but who's the most overrated player in tennis history?
0: Hmm. Well, since I've been trolling everyone all year inadvertently, I might as well say Stan Wawrinka. Um, I don't really, I I never would have said that before. I I don't think Stan Wawrinka is super overrated. I just didn't realize how, well, let me rephrase that. I never thought Stan Wawrinka was super overrated until all of Stan Wawrinka's fans uh, told me how wrong I was about placing him on this list. Uh, I mean, you can take the flip side of my Frank Kovacs list to think of all the ways in which a player might be overrated. One of which is is having their best days at slams, um, not backing it up with performances at at um, at other tournaments, um, having their best days against the very best players. I mean, that that counts for something. I mean, obviously, it's it's very impressive that. He beat Djokovic as as many times as he did in the in the venues when he did. But if you don't have the career to back that up, that ends up being weighted for more than it deserves to be waited for. So I mean I feel like I can't really I can't really alienate Vavrinka fans any more than I have already. So let's just let's just go with Vavrinkka some more.
1: Okay, last one from this mini section, question number 14 overall. You you've been sent these other lists, I'm sure you've seen some of them on your own. What do people most often get wrong when trying to rank the GOATs greatest of all time? Your list again being greatest the last 100 years, close enough.
0: Okay, the, the most frequent mistake people make is forgetting what the what the rules of the game are. Not the rules of tennis, but the rules of making a GOAT list. So if you're going to do this at all, like I was saying about mixing men and women, you have to compare people by by comparing how they performed against their era. I mean, you just can't do it otherwise. Like, There's basically two ways of, of making a list, one of which is ranking them based on how they managed to get into their own era. The other way is some objective measure of how good they are at tennis. And if you use the objective measure, then every player in the top 100 now is better than probably any player who ever picked up a racket before a picker year, 1968, 1945, whatever. I mean, it's just the differences in in training and nutrition and coaching and everything like the number of players who are competing the number of countries that are involved just even world population today's players are the best i mean i i wrote an article for a tennis magazine maybe a decade ago where i i applied a very different kind of algorithm to try to figure out how much the game has improved by just looking at how how the same players perform in one year and then the year after that, when the, the pool of competition changes a little bit. And if you, if you link all of those year to year comparisons, then you see that in most, in most years, the level of play improves, like some, some players retire, some other players enter, and generally the ones who are entering, once you adjust for age and all this other stuff, the ones who are entering are better than the ones who left. So multiply that by a hundred years and it's it's enormous. And that's true of virtually all sports. I mean, it's obvious in track and field when you can watch the world record times go down, 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 down. It's even true in baseball. Like if if, if you honestly do this kind of analysis with baseball, you end up end up with Babe Ruth being a pretty middling player by today's standards. So if you if you use that approach, then your best hundred players of all time is pretty much the current top one hundred. And Bill Tilden does not even come into the mix. So, long story short, you can't do that. It doesn't work. Like there's no there's no way to make a sensible goat list by doing that. So, if you compare players by how they managed against their own era, you can't combine it with how the game has changed. So, a lot of the a lot of people who think that it's obvious that Serena is the greatest of all time or it's obvious that Djokovic is the greatest of all time, they fall back on saying the game has changed so much that they're playing at a different level. Um, if, if you gave them a wooden racket, they'd beat labor playing with a wooden racket. I, I don't know what all the arguments are, but there's this sense that because the level of the game has improved, the greatest player of all time is probably the, the most recent really great player. And I get it. I mean, if you watch Djokovic playing at his peak, yeah, he's definitely the best player of all time in, in some objective sense and maybe some some other senses as well. But that's you can't use that as a factor. It just isn't logically consistent. So that doesn't necessarily mean that Djokovic isn't the best of all time, but it means that you can't use that argument. And I think we'll, like we talked about this a little bit when when I did your Thirty Love episode during the U.S. Open. it seemed like people were taking for granted that Serena was the greatest of all time. And obviously she's up there, you can make a very good case for her. Um, But I think a lot of the reason for that is because people are mixing how much she dominated with her era with how great the game is today. And that's that's just logically inconsistent.
1: Moving on to you tossing all of this data, all of this evidence-based argument and disagreeing with your own algorithm. I call this section Jeff versus Jeff's algorithm. So this is what what you personally feel versus the rankings. And you may just pass on all of these because that's not how you how you tick, but I'm going to ask them anyway. These are all, again, randomly selected because a lot of people had questions in this vein. Which of your player rankings, either in absolute terms or relative to another player, do you disagree with the most?
0: I won't pass on the whole section, but... It's just not really how I tick. And I remember, maybe it was when we did, a, we did an episode together after I wrote the Vavrenka piece, or maybe it was the 30 Love piece. I, I, was, I was asking you about a few rankings, and, and your answer was just like, well, if that's what the algorithm says, that's what it is. And that I'm not quoting directly, and I might be misrepresenting you entirely, so hopefully not. But um, outside of the top of the list, I'm not sure what I would have done if, if you sat me down in a room with a pencil and a piece of paper and said list the top 100 players of all time. I, without data, I don't know how to do that. It feels like you're trying to quantify something without letting me quantify it. And my answer to that kind of question is always, okay, well, if we want to make a list, we need to quantify it. We need to figure out how to quantify it. And then I'll answer my own question. But if, yeah, if you, if, without the opportunity to, come up with the best possible formula, I don't know how I'd answer the question. I mean, there are a few that surprised me. Um, like like everyone else, I didn't expect Conchita to be so high. I didn't expect John McEnroe to be quite as high as he was. I certainly didn't expect him to be one spot, one spot behind Bjorn Borg. Um, at one point, I expected... Um, Richard Gonzalez to be quite a bit higher than he actually was. I think I even tweeted once after reading something about him, like he was a legit, greatest of all time candidate. And he is, you need, you can come up with formulas that would put him higher than that I had him at number 17. Uh, I think I would have expected both Margaret Court and Pete Sampras to be higher than they were. Um, Court, because I've, I've been put in this awkward position of being a defender of hers against Serena Williams. And I don't, I don't want to be a Margaret Court defender, but I think people push back too hard against her accomplishments. Um, and Sampras, I just—I've been hearing my whole life about how he's the greatest of all time, so it's hard to accept that he's not. But when you actually look at the numbers, and like I have r- researched exactly who they were playing, when, and how strong the errors were, and all this stuff, it—like I was saying before—it it kind of falls into place. It starts to make sense. And I've been saying since the beginning of the year, like there's 25 players with good cases for the greatest of all time. And it's easy to separate those 25 from, say, the players ranked 51 to 100. But, I mean, I think in this is part of the, the impulse behind this whole project. Like, unless you do devise, like, a logically consistent coherent algorithm with a ton of data behind it, I I don't know how you rank them and how you defend it. Like, it, The alternative is either you try to go on your gut, which is going to be, like, Horribly misleading because you haven't seen Bill Tilden play, you haven't seen Don Budge play, you don't remember how good Sampras was because you've watched so many highlights since you watched the full match, uh, and and yeah, you you end up you end up overrating players you watch, players you like, and to me, like I, I think I've been spending so much of so much of my adult life trying to push back against those biases. I end up just saying I'm not going to do it. I'm I'm going to come up with the best algorithm I can and. My list as my list. So, yeah, I guess that's my answer to that.
1: Okay, so even though you say you're not going to pass, we won't do much more here. <laughs> but, but maybe you'll, since you did uh, at least concede, you might have been surprised by some of it. Who didn't make the cut who most surprised you?
0: Again, I've justified this to myself. Um, I mean, I, d- I did look at those players quite a bit when I was making the list. I was, I was concerned that I'd leave out players who belong. So I... I looked at the players on the edge a lot when I was developing the algorithm. And I was a little surprised Naomi Osaka wasn't there since she won four slams. I mean, the, the biggest, the biggest um, point against her is just longevity. I mean, she's young. She has presumably half or more of her career ahead of her. So by the time she retires, she probably will be on the list. But, uh, but I would have expected her to be there on the strength of her, her slams. Thomas Muster, I know some somebody specifically asked about him. He was close to missing the cut, but I I would have expected him to be there. I mean, he was. I think people called him the king of clay for a little while, and he wasn't just good on clay. He, and again, this is someone from the era when I was growing up, so I remember hearing about how great Thomas Muster was. it's tough to accept that maybe he isn't quite as good as I would have thought. Uh, another guy is Kafelnikov. I mean, all court players with players with great successes on multiple surfaces tended to do pretty well under this algorithm and he did that he won multiple slams like obviously a great player I would have expected him to be in there he didn't miss by much but those are a couple um, but be I mean beyond that it's and I, and I think we'll get to some other names that people have have raised questions about and and a lot of those are are valid that I mean the people who are in the next 50 on the list are pretty much who you'd expect and i i would have accepted them like anyone who just mentioned and probably 50 or more other names like if they had been number 112 on the list i would have said yeah okay that sounds right i buy that uh, there's just not a huge gap between you know number 112 and number 162 so it's it it's not a huge judgment call it's again you have to go back to the algorithm and say what are these minor differences that are keeping one in and keeping another out?
1: All right. Still still maybe in the realm of not your comfort zone, but a lot of people I think looked at the list, looked at looked at where people compared and it, it raised some hypothetical questions for them. Uh, both, you know, among players who didn't compete directly or just different directions the game might have gone based on reading the history that you unearthed. So Two randomly selected of these before we move on. First, what is your, I'll I'll just read it as written. From the 128 algorithm, is there any indication how the level among the parentheses 1926 to 68 pro men's players, so the the pro game when it was separate uh, compared to the amateur players of the time?
0: That is a, yeah, that's a really tough question. and it, it varies a lot from year to year, just like the the levels of the pro and amateur games varied a lot from year to year. I mean, there were a lot of, I, I would say that the majority of years, the best player, according to my algorithm, was the best pro, but not always. And some of the exceptions f- sometimes feel wrong. Like one one example that I, I think I mentioned this in one of the last articles was, I think it was 1958, the year that Ashley Cooper won three majors. and uh, Lou Hode had just turned pro and if you asked anybody at the time they would have told you Lou Hode is head and shoulders above Ashley Cooper uh, and I see it, I get it probably uh, but in 1958 Lou Hode went and played Richard Gonzalez a ton of times and lost more than half of those matches. Ashley Cooper won three majors and virtually everything else he did so he crunched the numbers and it actually wasn't even super close. Ashley Cooper one was pretty comfortably ahead. So I don't I don't want to say that's unquestionably right. It's it, it's really tough for it's tough to use the same algorithm for such totally different situations. Um, I mean, career wise. You can see on my rankings. Obviously, hode comes out ahead of Ashley Cooper, so maybe Ashley Cooper just had a career year. Maybe he wouldn't if he had to face Lou Hode in finals. Maybe Lou hode had a rough year when he was transitioning to the pro. I mean, he he did literally. But uh, it's it, it's a tough thing, and one of the problems with with judging the pros, I and mean, we have tons of data. I mean, the the great thing about the 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 barnstorming circuit is for the top players, they played so much that like we have. Not just 100 matches for some of the best players per year, but 100 matches against really high-quality competition, which is great for really firmly establishing a level with an ELO algorithm. On the other hand, if you are Richard Gonzalez and your goal is to win 51 out of 100 matches against Lou Ho, or Tony Traber, or whoever, then... Yeah, you're fighting every night. You'd like to run up the score, but you're not super stressed about it being 70 to 30 or 69 to 31. So, I'm not sure exactly how well those one-loss records represent the gap between the players, and that would be more of a, a point in favor of Gonzalez than a point in favor of Hobe. But, uh, but that is one potential problem that might have it might have kept the top pros down in some years when. They were clearly better than someone like Ashley Cooper, but maybe their rankings don't agree with that. So I could easily go on for 30 more minutes about that, and maybe it's something that I'll end up writing about. But, I mean, the short answer is that it's it's
1: tough. Yeah, I mean, there could even be an incentive for the leader in the head-to-head series to keep it close so that it feels more competitive and exciting and gives them both a chance of more of a better contract the next year. So, yeah, it could definitely go the other way.
0: And that was a, that was frequently rumored that the better player was tanking, and, and the promoters were often working very hard to to battle those rumors and it feels like most of the time it wasn't happening, but there were at least there's at least a year or two where I think it's even been admitted by either the player or the promoter that somebody was taking it easy a little
1: bit exactly like you don't have to tank to just maybe be more indifferent about match number eighty than. Ashley Cooper was about his third slam final that year. Exactly. Um, Okay. Question number 18 and the second and last of this mini section on hypotheticals. Do you think the men's pro game served to delay the start of the open era or is it possible that without the pro game, tennis might never have gone open and become like so many Olympic sports that have no money, such as skating or many track and field events? Presumably there are many other possibilities besides these two, but answer this any way you'd like.
0: Yeah, that's a good question and it's i think it's inevitable it would have turned pro in some form no matter what because there was so much money involved like, i'm not sure when it started but i mean jack kramer wrote an article in the 1950s admitting he was being paid under the table um i'm not i don't think till never admitted being paid under the under the table but even in his day there were players who would they would say, oh, I'll come to to the tournament, you just need to bet me a hundred bucks that I can't jump over the net or something. So they'd make a bet that was unrelated to the tournament and their appearance, of course, but it would end up with a hundred dollars in the player's pocket. And there was expense money that people played games with. And I mean, there was, people were paying for tickets. These were big stars. There's obviously gonna be money involved. Um, So when you think about it in those terms, that the USTA, the USLTA then, it was fighting battles over amateurism in 1920. I mean, it's amazing that it took 50 years for the open air to come about. So I mean, when you think about it that way, maybe it's true that the the pro tennis circuits did end up delaying open tennis. Um, On the other hand, I I I would say I probably lean towards that view. On, On the other hand, the pro circuits did kind of lay the groundwork for what what professional what open tennis finally looked like. Just the idea of tournament circuits, the idea of um, of being awarded points toward rankings, stuff like that. That that all happened first in the pro circuit, and that was imported pretty much wholesale in 1968. So I mean, it, for someone like Labor or Rosewall, 1968 wasn't that different from 1967. They just did the same schedule they did before, only they also played Wimbledon and they played the U.S. Open and so on. Uh, so I don't know. Like I say, I would I would lean towards it the pro circuit delaying it. But it's it's interesting to think through the counterfactuals.
1: Speaking of counterfactuals and hypotheticals, a, a sort of subset or cousin of hypotheticals is comparing eras, which you're doing in, in, by doing the ranking and selecting across eras. And you talked about what that means and doesn't mean. So I've selected two of these questions randomly. They're they're related, but I think different enough to ask them both. Number 19, with the return of career length to pre-1970 levels, I think that players are again playing later into their uh, 30s and beyond. Is it fair to say that the inability of the top players in the 1980s and 90s to stay at the top was due to rapid changes in equipment technology that have since slowed down. Was the was the equipment technology changing so quickly in the eighties and nineties that it shortened careers, and that's no longer the case?
0: That seems right. I mean, I don't have a great answer to that. I think you didn't you do a podcast with maybe one or two guys who wrote a paper about that a little bit that that they they pointed to changes in in equipment tech as an explanation for. Like the age distribution on tour or something like that. Does that ring any bells?
1: It rings a bell. <laughs> okay.
0: Um, I. Yeah, I mean, obviously something was going on in the 80s and 90s. I'm. I'm not. I'm not sure if it explains why players in the 90s didn't last as long. I think it explains. It definitely explains why some of the players who succeeded very early in the 80s did. Like, I don't think you could have. Michael Chang showing up and and winning Roland Garros 2017, if he wasn't playing with a with a racket as a native, that his competition was playing with having adopted it from something else. So something was going on there. Uh, it doesn't explain the whole thing because that's the same that's the same era that like, Nick Bollettieri and imitators were 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 starting to create their their super training camps and and. In some countries, they were starting to aggressively train young players because there's so much money in the game. That there were other reasons why teenagers were a bigger part of the game in the '80s than just than just technology, but definitely explains that. I'm not sure. Like maybe you could create some story where stronger rackets meant a more aggressive game before players could manage their bodies better, so you end up with pat rafter arriving and breaking down early or i'm not sure or or, or maybe something else came later so maybe the late hewitt's of the world arrived uh, too soon for rafter and krycek and the rest to, to have longer careers i i don't know it's, it's a good question i'm not sure there'd ever be a fully satisfactory answer to that but it's there's definitely something going on in in the 90s that makes that era look different from the other generations of players
1: So sticking with thinking about equipment, but not so much impact on injuries or advantages or longevity, uh, modern players have both better equipment and better coaching slash training slash analytics than past players did. Which do you think gives modern players a greater advantage over their past peers, equipment on the one hand or coaching, training, analytics on the other hand?
0: I mean, it's got to be equipment. I think it's the the – Coaching, training, nutrition—that's huge. But you can, I mean, if you just run through some examples, if if you don't let Tilden have a racket like a like like a modern racket and put him on a court against someone with a modern racket, he's gonna get crushed. I mean, if they're good anyway. Um, but if you take the most fit player from the pre-war era and and put them on a court with the players today, I, I think he'd probably manage. So he might not manage for 15 years like federer or Djokovic, but he'd managed for a while so so yeah i mean in in, in terms of career length I would, that training and coaching starts to creep up but i mean training especially coaching i don't know coaching is tough that's a whole other can of worms obviously it makes a difference and helps a lot of players who might be more purely athletically gifted but not necessarily with tennis brains to make up the difference but I would put that third behind equipment and training.
1: Okay, I think a good next section to jump to when we're thinking of comparing eras is the number one of all the eras, Rod Laver. I uh, wanted to be sure to have some specific labor questions. We actually had five here, and maybe we'll come back and do more depending on time, but I'm gonna ask two, uh, and so I'm gonna select these ones editorially. Sorry to the random number generator. First, just because I, I didn't see much in the essay about this and, and saw a line that almost led me the other way, what happened to Laver at SLAMS after 69? I know SLAMS don't count for anything more than other matches and tournaments in the algorithm, but from the historical point of view, um, it just seems surprising what happened to his SLAM record after his second Grand Slam.
0: Yeah, I don't have a great answer for that. Um, when I, I, I kind of decided that I wasn't going to, I was not going to try to write a, a super giant essay about him, and I didn't need to cover that, so I didn't end up researching it too much. Um, I mean, he, he did have some, have some tough losses. Um, he was playing killing schedules, so I, mean, I think that might have caught up with him a little bit. But I'm not sure. It, it's, it's a good question. I, I might just have to leave it at that, that... Like, yeah, I I I don't know. It's 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 surprising because a he was he continued to be competitive elsewhere throughout those years. I mean he never won the WCT finals, um, but he was in the he was in the final of that well into the a few years into the 70s. Um, That's the closest equivalent to the tour finals now and. He was still considered like the man to beat. like the the story I told at the beginning of the Jimmy Connors essay was Connors won the seventy four u s. Open and he told his manager, "Get me labor." Like labor was the one guy he hadn't beaten. so I mean, he's, he still had the cachet as the one of the greatest players around. so i i'm I'm not sure. i'd I'd be interested in in some possible answers to that, but I don't have any.
1: okay. And while we're comparing eras and thinking of players who didn't finish number one, if this were a continue, continually updating list based on the algorithm, realistically, how possible is it for Djokovic to catch up to labor? Working on the assumption he won't be improving on his peak metrics at this stage of his career, how many 2019 to 2022 type seasons does he need to put up to close the gap?
0: He needs a lot. <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure how many. Let's see. Um, maybe... Th- three more years if, if 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 he had three more years at the current level he's at now and he I mean, assuming he's able to play enough um then that might do it i'd, I'd have to actually plug some things into some spreadsheets which i'm not going to do while you're having a conversation with me but it looks like a minimum of three years maybe two if they were really good like if, if he and Alcaraz ended up having a great rivalry, where it turns out that Alcaraz is a great player, but Djokovic still beats him three out of four times, something like that. Um, but I would say probably three years, like he's having now. And the, the the main difference in their ratings is that labor is just so far and above the best peak in men's tennis history. And this is this is one point where if you're if you're a Tilden supporter, you can probably pipe up and make a good case against me, but. As far as Djokovic versus Labour, it's it's a huge gap that like like this the, whoever asked that question is 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 rightly saying like the he, Djokovic isn't going to make up the peak gap at this point so he can only grind it out and that's a a really substantial gap to make up.
1: All right, moving on to the top woman on the list, Steffi Graf. Uh, of course, we don't have separate men's and women's versions of this list, and they are banned. And if you find one, you should burn it. But She was number two on the list, and we just talked about number one. So I'm going to, again, select two questions from a slightly longer list. These are chosen randomly. If Monica Sellis had not been stabbed, do you think Graf would still have been the top woman in the 128?
0: I think probably not. Um, She still would have been very high, just as evidenced by the fact that Sellis is so high on the basis of what she did, including a few years in her short career at the top being second to Steffi, I mean, what you would have had, I mean, the assumption in this question is, okay, Monica Sellers was, if, if she wasn't stabbed, she would have continued playing at this level for some number of years. Um, the level that the two of them were at, at that point was, it's comparable to Serena and Venus at their, at their joint peak around 2002. Um, and it might have even been a little bit higher, depending on how you measure it. So beyond that, you have to really start making up stories. Like you could, you could imagine Cellus dominating the head-to-head or getting even better than she was at that point, and then maybe that would have knocked Steffi further down the list. But I think it's more likely it would have been a one-in-one-a for a while the direct answer to the question is yes it would have knocked her down off the number uh, from the number one women's position because she and Navajalova were very very close so pretty much any small tweak of the two of them would, would have swapped them on the list so presumably having monica around would have moved steffi down but i don't think it would have done it very much
1: and yeah presumably may probably not had sell overtake overtake her then sounds like, I guess, I mean, too you, hypothetical you, to know. It, it,
0: yeah, it becomes, you just have to become really hypothetical and imagine that CELIS has a equally long and successful career or, or somehow reaches a peak ELO higher than the highest recorded peak ELO in women's science history.
1: Okay, to get even more, well, differently hypothetical, we had a lot of questions like this. This is the first one to come up randomly what do you think would happen if Graf were to play Helen Wills or Suzanne Langland? So I guess it's two different answers, two different matchups.
0: Yeah, that's a, that's a lot of hypotheticals. I don't like answering this stuff because I feel like I need to start with my 15 assumptions before I can give you an answer just because they're so different. I would love to see Steffi belting it out with Helen Wills belting it out. I think that that Steffi probably would have taken apart Longlin just because Longlin's game was based more on steadiness and movement. And like, in, unless you assume that that translates to being Navratilova around the court, then like Steffi just passes her over and over and over again. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it, it, again, it depends on what you're assuming, but unless she becomes Martina, then, then she loses. Helen Wills is tougher, again, depending on how you translate her into. 60 years later, but, I mean, she was the best baseliner of her era by an enormous amount. I mean, one, if we're going to play the hypothetical game, one way to compare them is to is to look at how they compared to the men of their era, and Helen Wills couldn't hang with the best men of her era, but she could play well against, say, a top college player. Um, she played exhibitions with a guy named Phil Neer, who was a collegiate champion and a, a a pretty good player in California at that time and the equivalent man in 1990 I'm pretty sure would have taken apart Steffi Graf um I I don't know if she ever played exhibitions like that I don't think she did but I did, I, I don't think that's even really a debate that that Steffi couldn't have beaten a guy like that so by that measure Helen Wills wins but I don't know you, you kind of have to pick pick your way of making those adjustments and you can pick a lot of crazy ones, including the one I just did.
1: All right. That was fun, but I'm not going to make you do that much more, (laughs) but maybe even less fun. we, We do have a lot of questions which I've reduced to just names. And these are questions in the vein of why is she ranked so high? Why is he ranked so low? Why isn't he on the list? Why isn't she on the list? And also what, does he still need to do to make the list or how high up on the list could he get for for an active player? So I've, I've divided it into these different sections and we'll see how many we can get through quickly. And if we're doing it real fast, we'll, we'll add some more. But for now, I'm just gonna randomly select a couple from each of these subcategories. Yeah, I'll, I'll try
0: to answer these more quickly. I've been going on too long and, and I could go on too long about most of these, but I wouldn't be healthy for anybody. I'll start to get angry and then that would degrade the quality.
1: I, I don't think you've been going on too long. I think the algorithm for greatness of this podcast is not tied to how many questions we get through. Okay, so fair the twenty-fifth question. Th- this is in the category of why is this player ranked where they are, uh, and I had some who some people who people more people seem to think was ranked too low, but the selected randomly ones all I think were mostly being asked about from the sense of why is this player ranked as high as they are so number 25 michael Steak.
0: yeah that was funny because the, the guy that i i had on the podcast was that to talk about michael Steak and tim bustler um he he knows michael Steak. He's interviewed him writes about him um and he was surprised that michael Steak made the list so not even a partisan in that case um well he just has the one slam but his best year i i want to say it was 1996 that he made the. I think it was the the year end finals final or something like that. He had a really good end of the year. Um, I don't think he was the best player by Elo that year, but he was very close. So he had a he had one of the better peaks of the mid nineties um, in a year that he doesn't get enough credit for because he didn't win a slam. So that that's the case for getting him into the top one twenty eight.
1: David Ferrer, number twenty
0: six. One thing that I think is easy to miss with the big four is there was there was a time around ferrer's peak when the big four was better than it would be later and we know the big four isn't as strong now but the 2010 big four was better than the 2015 big four and it's it's not super close so when ferrer was peaking um that was when the big four collectively was peaking and ferrer was number five so i know he got a little higher in the rankings i think he got a little higher in elo too but um, but basically he was he was a strong number five in probably the best era of in terms of top fives in tennis history. So that's that's good enough for me.
1: OK, switching to women, uh, but also why is she ranked so high? Pam Shriver 20 question number 27 Pam Shriver. It's
0: actually really similar to Ferrer. Um, only Shriver was number three. She wasn't always number three, but she was by far the most common number three for years behind Chris Everett and Martina Navratilova. And because this applies to probably, I don't know, let's say 1981 to pretty much all of the 80s and 90s and a little bit into the 2000s, there were a few women who dominated those eras so heavily that we tend to discount the eras because we look at. We look at a player and see like num- whoever number six was went two and 17 against Monica Seles or Steffi Graf or Martina, um, and thus we think the era is weak, but we don't look at how number six did against everyone else. So as the world was gener- was producing more good tennis players, um, as people were you know, adapting to better rackets and training more and getting better coaching... Um, the top 10 was still holding their own really well against the rest of the field. So you have people like Zena Garrison
1: and Mary Joe Fernandez who don't get their due um, because they
0: lost so much to first Martina and then Steffi and Monica Seles. So Pam Shriver was was that person before before Zena and Mary Joe and I guess Conchita Martinez to some extent. Uh, so she was... In, might not have been the best era for a top three the way that Ferreira was the number five and the best era for a top five but um she was a strong number three behind impossibly strong one and two for years
1: so this may be a very similar answer uh and I've mostly been trying to omit names that you touched on already in previous sections but Sabatini Gabriella Sabatini why was she ranked so high
0: yeah she should have been number one I think um if I think if I mentioned this in the essay, I believe. I mean, she she never reached number one in Elo, but she was close. But if the WTA ranking system then had been what it is now, um, she would have been number one. She gets knocked down a little bit uh, because when when she was at her best, well, first of all, people don't remember that she she beat Graf as much as she did, um, especially in, in the short period of time that she did. And then people who do know how much she beat Steffi Graf tend to discount that era because that's when Graf was struggling with some injuries, with her dad being in the tabloids and messy things. So it, it's always tough when when you get to a level of someone like Martina or Steffi Graf, then every loss has a story around it. Like they, this becomes when the thumb injury happened or when the palimony case was, was filed or whatever the case is. And it's, it's really tough then looking back to separate the, the losses with, that really had excuses and the losses that just had an explanation that is maybe 10% of the story again, and the other 90% is a really good player. So I mean, there were a lot of signs that Sabatini was getting better against the rest of the field. And at that same time, that's when she started beating Steffi Graf. So at a time when Steffi had recently been perhaps the best player in tennis history, uh, Steffi, sorry, Gabriella Sabatini stepped up and beat her a bunch of times so even if you give her only like 50% of the credit and the other 50% goes to the German tabloids then that's still a huge accomplishment and gets massively underrated
1: Alright, well moving on to category of these players weren't on the list and we we'll start with the players who are no longer active so it's not a question of well maybe they will get there but you know, often, why weren't they on there? And maybe relatedly, if you have it, uh, how close were they? So first among the men, we'll do a couple, starting with Murat Safin.
0: Okay, so I'll, I'll give you rankings, but like I said before, I don't have the my the full final list of what my algorithm spit out. I have the the, the second to last generation of what it spit out. So actually, this is a good one, since I don't know whether you're gonna mention Gustavo quertin but I know a lot of people have. One person on Twitter yesterday called it grotesque that Kuertern wasn't on the list. So I'm glad that I'm hitting people in the in their emotional center. Um, Sapin and Querton are basically tied around 225 of all time. Uh, and I know a lot of people ask about Yevgeny Kafelnikov as well. Kafelnikov's a lot higher. I mentioned a few minutes ago. He's around 150, but that, out, that era just doesn't stand out that well. Um, I mean, for one thing, there wasn't really an era when those guys were dominating. Quirtin's case comes down to to winning Roland Garros and not playing that well outside of clay. Uh, I mean, by tennis 128 standards. The other guys had solid peaks, and they often looked very good when they were doing it, but they didn't last very long. So us for those three guys, a lot of people have asked me the, these sort of questions over the years, and I always point them to the year-end ELO table on their tennis abstract page. And I mean, Safin was year-end number one, one year. He wasn't particularly high ELO rating for a number one, but he, he was number one. And I'm not even sure if he had another season ending top five, maybe he had one more, but it was really uneven. And and Quirton looks about the same. Kefelnikovs is better, but still not that great. So um, these are cases where I think players get remembered for their peaks and even their peaks aren't as good as we remember them to be.
1: Okay. Well, as is usual in one question by how we're counting, you, you answered a few. So I'm giving you credit for probably answering about 90 by now, but we're up to number 30. Uh, the second man I wanted to ask about who didn't make the list, uh, Adriano Pananta.
0: Let's see. I, I saw that on Twitter and he's not even on my list. And I'd just have to double check and make sure that that's right. But the way I did my first cut was I took only players who finished two seasons with an ELO of 1,900 or higher. So that left me with a list of about 175 players, 175 men, I think maybe 200 women or something like that, maybe a few more women than that, but about 400 players overall. And I would have expected Panetta to make the cut, but, um, but apparently not. So he would be I don't know, around 400 or something. And I will say, what there, I know there's a few other players people have been curious about who didn't make that initial cut, and it's not really right to say that they're not in the top 400 because, I mean, if, I don't know, just looking at some of the players who did make the cut, like, there's some really weak names who managed to have two years where they crept above the 1900 level, like, I mean... Tamea Vachinsky is is on the, the very bottom of the women's list. Uh, I mean, everybody down there looks pretty mediocre by all-time great standards. So I think if I were going this deep on the list, I'd probably use a different cutoff and maybe even have to resort to a, a different algorithm to separate players. But needless to say, Panada is pretty low.
1: Yeah, you weren't trying to rank the top 400. You were trying to make sure the 128 best would, be, would make it through this first filter so that you could and select and rank them. Exactly. Um, Okay, moving to two women who didn't make the list and are no longer active. And as you you and listeners of the show who've heard me on it before know, I'm pretty bad at pronunciation, so please correct me. Amanda Ketzer? Ketzer?
0: I don't remember how people said it when she was playing. I'm pretty sure it would be Ketzer, but maybe it was Americanized. I mean, she was pretty Americanized. Did you know she dated Brady Anderson? the Baltimore Orioles player?
1: No, I did not know that.
0: That's some pretty hot gossip for you. They were dating in the nineties. Um, she is support-
1: Was it during his 50 home run season?
0: <laughs> I I don't know. I, I vaguely remember that this, it was one of the relationships that was credited with, with at least making her better. It was like she, she wasn't taking tennis so seriously. Then they got together and she saw how, you know, a real athlete trained and, I mean, these things are always exaggerated in one way or the other, but that was the, the, the story was that the relationship made her better. I think she was very close. Um, she she peaked. Uh, let's see, her peak year was 21.50, uh, which is gets her in the conversation. That was in the mid 90s, so 1997 it looks like. So that was a, a pretty competitive period. She would have been maybe 140 or so it looks like and I think that I don't know whether this question would have come up but someone maybe it was Petra who asked it it, for the top African players and I think Amanda Kutzer would be the top African woman on the list
1: okay and Barbara Shett (laughs) she didn't make the cut that was definitely
0: Petra who asked about Barbara Shett um but no, same same story as Panetta and I'm guessing she's even lower still i don't i don't know what her elo ratings are but she's not on the list at
1: all all right we're gonna stay in this category jeff of names of players that people were expecting to see wanted to see were wondering about not seeing on the list these players though are active so there's the additional element of what more do they need to do or how high on the list could they get again there's sort of an assumption baked in that this list will continue to be updated in some fashion or will be updated again in the future. So let's start with two men. Uh, first one to be, again, chosen randomly, Carlos Alcaraz.
0: Well, I, I, a ton of people were asking me this in the first half of the year when when he was beating everybody. And I think at one point he was a Roland Garros favorite, at least according to my forecast. Um, I wrote something about him and Shvantec that what they would need to do with such short careers to make it on the list would be to to have just an incredibly high peak this year, which would mean just more or less going undefeated this year and coming up with one of these 2,400, 2,450 type ELO ratings, which nobody has right now on tour. So he did not come close. Um, I, I think he's around 2,200 right now, which is... Great, but you gotta do that for a few years. I'm not sure how many years. Um, I mean, if, if he stays at this level, we might be looking at five years before he cracks the list, maybe even a little bit more, I'm not sure. Um, I suspect he could climb higher, but but yeah, it's, it, it would take a few years. But on the other hand, if he does turn out to have like a peak Djokovic, peak Federer type of year, in the next couple then that'll pretty much get him on the list because he's got this was his second year already where he he crossed my 1900 Elo threshold so he's all 2023 will already be his third year and if that third year is great then he's definitely on the list he might even be top 100 at that point maybe not quite top 100 but he's he's getting there
1: how about Dominique team
0: let's see Dominic team is Around 250 on my list doesn't have a super high peak. Um, his weakest, uh, yeah, his, his weakest point is longevity, which you'd expect from someone who could want to have a longer career. But he's not much better by the by the best five year measure. So it w- it would help if he could put together a couple more years like his peak. I, mean, I guess that's a that's a truism for anybody. But he he's got a long way to go. It's it, it, it seems like if he can't fully recover from his injury now, then he's probably never going to crack the list. He's, yeah, he's he's further out than I would have guessed, I think.
1: And now two women, uh, starting with Kerber, Angelique Kerber.
0: Kerber was really close. Um, I'm, I don't think she was exactly the next woman in, but she was very close. So maybe she would have been like 135 or something like that, basically in that almost exactly the same range as Amanda Kutzer.
1: And you already mentioned her and have written about her, but she's done a bit since then, Sviatech.
0: Yeah, sviatech will probably make it in next year. And in in one way, she's a similar case to Osaka, because I think a lot of people just assume that three slams gets you in. I mean, if three slams gets you in the Hall of Fame, it must get you on the tennis one twenty eight, right? Um, and one thing I, I wrote about in the in the article you mentioned, or that I mentioned first, I guess, it, about Alcarez and sviatech is – the list was not designed to capture players in the middle or early of part of their career. So I'm not saying that like Sfiontek doesn't deserve a place. It's just that what we're, the way the algorithm treats her now is as if like Connolly or Sellis, her career came to an end right now. And we know it doesn't. So even with a pretty modest forecast for the next three years or next five years, she definitely makes it on the list. I mean, just, Automatically, but the algorithm doesn't make any assumptions about her playing well next year or even playing at all next year. So, as it is, I, I think she's maybe not quite in the top 150, but pretty close. So, one more year like this one, and and she's in with probably with room to spare.
1: The we have two more kind of snub related questions. People who aren't on the list, but or three more uh, in two types. These aren't about specific players, but more about groups of players. So first double specialists
0: what about double specialists
1: well you didn't you know there are great doubles players who are on the list because of their singles play why aren't double specialists among the 128 best of the last 100 years Why aren't the best double specialists
0: partly because it would have been a whole another dimension to consider and i don't know how to do that exactly another another fact is we just don't really have the data um that is something i'd like to fix eventually but we probably could assemble the data for someone like the Bryan Brothers or the Woodies, but doubles data before the open era, or even even more recently for women, it's it's pretty sketchy. So um, I, I don't even know how I'd start going about doing that.
1: Okay, and also a category of players who aren't in either of the two you're including, but wheelchair players. Yeah, I wouldn't even know how to get started on that. I, mean, I, I don't know enough about wheelchair tennis to
0: say any of this very confidently, but I get the sense that the that the fields are so small at the top that it would be tough to compare. Like yeah, I was talking earlier about how it, it seems pretty straightforward to compare men's and women's tennis because I mean, once you convert everything into percentiles, the distributions of of how how strong the players are are relatively similar. I, I'm guessing that if you tried to make a very long list of wheelchair players, then the distributions would look very, very different um, just because the, the fields are so top heavy. And I guess some of that is probably just participation at this point. It's not as popular a sport. It's not as accessible to as many people. Um, so I, it's just so far out of my, my knowledge base that I, I, honestly never even crossed my mind to include wheelchair players.
1: Here's, here's another about players not on the list. If Aura Washington merited a spot, are there pre-integration black men players who belong on the list as well?
0: It's a brilliant question. Um, compliments to whoever wrote that one. Um, the short answer is no. And I would love to know more about this, and maybe I'll make this one of my research topics in the future. There were some very good um, black men players in those years. And for reasons I don't fully understand, they generally didn't stick around the, the black game for as long as Ora Washington and a couple other women did. Um, the, the, the name that is probably best known is Jimmy McDaniel, who played an exhibition match with Don Budge in the early 40s. Um, a lot of the top black players of, those, of that era they, they went to college. They often went to professional school, law school or medical school or something, uh, and for for the men, tennis was often, like, they played when they were in college or for a couple years after college, and they were getting themselves established. Uh, they didn't continue on. For the very few top women, often they did keep playing, and that's the, the reverse of what was more common in the amateur era for, for white players, where women would get married and leave while the men might stick around for longer. Um, but the best men players, like Edgar Brown, Tally Holmes, Reginald Weir, the few names that come to mind, they often would dominate for a couple of years, and then maybe they'd play some tournaments, but they would move on, and they would no longer be like an unquestioned number one. So it's very possible that talent-wise, that one or more of those men would have deserved it. Uh, But in terms of what they accomplished, there wasn't anybody who put anything close to the the type of longevity on the board that Ora Washington did.
1: I think that's a good transition to a really big batch of questions that are addressing all of the research you did, all the history you unearthed and the 128 essays that you wrote. Uh, We don't have unlimited time and there's so much to dig into. So, again, I'm going to just select some of these at random. I'm going to start with maybe very Closely connected to your last answer. Which player do you think overcame the most to get to the top?
0: Yeah, Aura's a tempting answer there. Um, the... I mean, she did, she was pretty much self-taught. Um, she didn't... I forget what age she was when she started playing, but maybe she was 19 or 20 or something. That's a good answer. The, the only reason not to say Aura Washington is that the top for her meant something different. So... It, it's really, really, really tough to judge the, the the objective quality of black tennis before integration because there just weren't that many serious players. There weren't a lot of coaches available. Uh, the season was only two or three months of the summer, so so it's it, however impressive it is the level that you reached, it's tough to know what that level is exactly. And the the obvious contrast to that is Althea Gibson, who had a lot of the same limitation, not the same because there was this this uh, this small group of sub- advocates, supporters of the black game, who who backed her, but she had a lot of the same things to overcome, and she did reach the very top of world tennis and won Wimbledon and and at Forest Hills. So, I mean, I, I think you have to go with Althea Gibson there because she she went from being a a kid in Harlem who thought tennis was a sissy sport and would have probably never played unless somebody just said here try this game too, uh, and she had to be the first black woman in mean, pretty much every tournament she ever played in her entire life from 1950 on she had to take on um she had to take on the best opponents in the world despite never having practice partners of that quality um and she had to be an outsider for her entire career she's certainly not the only outsider in in tennis history but she's probably the the most outsider of the outsiders in the the, the mainstream amateur game so so yeah i mean it, it's I, I think she's so underrated in so many ways. Like it's not an accident that I that my header photo for her essay was her with Jackie Robinson, because I mean, we, at least in the U.S. societally, I think Jackie Robinson is at the pinnacle he deserves to be at. Like there's almost no level of adulation you can give to Jackie Robinson that he did not deserve. Uh, and to me, Althea Gibson is pretty much at the same level, and the, the level of attention she gets is not even close not even within an order of magnitude or two and that's that i mean i won't say it burns me up but it, it seems obviously wrong and something that i hope i've done some small amount to start helping fix
1: which match jeff do you most wish you had attended from the last hundred years
0: i probably would have a different answer for this one any day you asked me but probably the match of the century the 1926 helen wills season on longland being I mean, Partly I'm thinking strategically here. If you only let me go to one match that I haven't seen, I want to get as much knowledge out of it as possible. So, I mean, all these great sports writers were there. I'd try to talk to them. Um, I'd get to see what the Riviera was like in those years. I'd get to see Helen Wills and Suzanne Longland. Uh, Yeah. I mean, I'm not sure there's ever been a scene around a match like that in, in a hundred years. So yeah, that
1: seems like a a good pick. I mean, it's, it's called the match of the century. It kind of answers itself, I guess. Yeah, it's, it's um, <laughs> interesting that there's a, I think the more common joke in the last couple of decades is the idea of
0: the trial of the century, that like, you know, if, you, if you have a big trial in 2001, it's the trial of the century, but is it really gonna stand up for 99 more years? But this was 1926. I'm not, I think people were calling it the match of the century then. And I mean, I don't know if enough people care about tennis history for this to really be a debate, but I would say it stood up as the match of the century for 74 more years.
1: Yeah, even like Borg McEnroe, I don't remember it being called that. You also have Hundred Year Storms, but that's a different. Oh, yeah, exactly. Why are there so few LGBT men in the 128, I guess, that we know of? And why are the ones we know about, Tilden von Kram, from so long ago?
0: Yeah, this is again, we're veering in a territory I don't know a ton about. And like you say, we don't we don't have positive proof of the sexual orientation of all 60-plus men. Um, But at least for the era we're talking about with Tilden and Juan Cram, I I think there's some social factors that intersected in certain ways. Like Tennis was a a rich person's sport. Um, And to the extent that people were not openly gay, but chose to pursue their sexual orientation in a way that might have come down to history like Tilnin von Kram have, that's mostly the rich people who did that. I mean if, if some if, if some poor person who wasn't really good at tennis was seeking out same sex partners, then we wouldn't know about it. So we just we know that they were married and we know that they have great grandchildren who are alive now. We don't know what they were interested in when um, outside of their marriage. So that's part of it. It's just that intersection. Um, it's it's tough because it, the narrative of tennis as a sissy sport for for decades cuts both ways because in I don't think that men who thought of themselves as gay would have been attracted to tennis because it was a sissy sport. By I mean, probably the opposite. Uh, a lot of the men who got involved with tennis knew that it was considered a sissy sport. They were made fun of because of tennis's reputation, so they went hard the other direction and they became super macho and uh, and they they tried to. To dispel that rumor notion about tennis so and i guess that the the other thing i i would add is that tennis is the has been the one sport for more than a century now that has always been combined men and women so it's again i'm veering so far out of what i know here but it it, it seems like gay men would be more interested in a sport that would have Aspects of both masculinity and femininity. So you have you have gay men like Ted Tinling involved in the sport for decades um, because there's a glamour to tennis that other sports don't have. Like some, somehow, I, I'm not sure whether you can entirely ascribe tennis's as glamour to the fact that it was always a mixed-gender sport, but I think that's that's pretty close to, closely related, and that that did make it appeal to people who maybe were left cold by by baseball or football or something like that.
1: Very thoughtful answer to a very hard question I wouldn't know how to answer. Jeff, what was your least favorite newspaper or writer or other source that you drew upon?
0: Okay, there's this book from, I think, 1984 called Once a Champion by a guy named Stan Hart. He was a literary editor, and what he did was he wanted to be a gonzo journalist. He went around the country for, I guess, a year and sought out... All the living champions he could find. So he talked to, to Jack Kramer, Don Budge, Ellsworth Vines, and on and on. The list goes. There's maybe maybe 30 chapters or something in there. And when I first heard about this book, I was so excited. I mean, this is this is someone who went out and talked to all the people who never wrote an autobiography, were stars before the era of really in-depth journalism that would that would get into like the, the personalities of the players. Uh, Like it felt like a lot of the stuff that I felt was missing from from all but the very best players of that era might be in this book, and like having stuff shipped to Norway is a huge pain in the ass. So I I had it shipped to my dad. My dad brought it when he came to visit. I was super psyched to read this book, and like half the book is about him, like arranging to talk to the players and (laughs) taking a taxi to their house and getting snubbed by some players. And he wanted to play tennis with everybody in like the, the Hunter Thompson Gonzo style. And a a ton of it was like he had a knee injury. So he felt like he had a hard time in that match, but he was still proud for taking two games off of whoever. And somebody didn't want to play because their knee was hurting. It's just, there is some good stuff in that book. Um, because he did, he did interview all the, all, all of these players, and uh, it's not a total loss, but it's, it's just 400 pages where about 350 pages you're, you're thinking, well, what? It's just this enormous wasted opportunity. Like, what was this guy thinking? Like, you've got, you've got an, a day with Don Budge, and you're gonna fret about the fact that he won't play tennis with you, and it's okay because your back is acting up, and he he came into New York and you're flattered and he's treating you like he might be a real buddy. It's like, dude, I don't care. And it's, it's that for hundreds of pages. So I, the moral of the story is don't buy that book.
1: Yeah. Don't waste an opportunity like that. Uh, well, I'm glad that you had the opportunity to vent. It sounded like, yeah, you that was too. long,
0: a long time coming. Thank you.
1: Back to the hard social issues questions. There are only six black athletes in the 128. This is the author of the question, uh, Charles Friesen asserting this, so I haven't checked, but he seems to be quite thorough. Uh, Serena Venus, Gibson, Ash, Washington Garrison, and another seven or so who might be identified as people of color by some standard. Richard Gonzalez, Pancho Segura, Gulagong, Chang, Barty, Nishikori, Na. Does tennis have a racism problem? Is it improving?
0: Well, I definitely think it's improving. Um, I don't know if it has a racism problem now. That's definitely above my pay grade. Um, it it's improved massively. I know there's a lot of people working very hard to continue to improve it. It seems like a, a lot of social questions like that these days, whether we're talking about tennis or or STEM or anything else. It's it's just about making sure the opportunities are there because I don't think anybody doubts that if if like a a brilliant 12 year old black tennis player or any any ethnic group tennis player turns up, there will be people who will support them and back them and, and coach them and give them whatever they need. The opportunities will be there. The the challenge is making sure that person gets a rack to put in their hand, or maybe they choose tennis instead of another sport. And I mean that's that's an enormous challenge, and there are I mean, all sorts of reasons why um, why blacks in particular, and probably other ethnic groups, would. Steer clear of tennis. I mean, I know that simply the fact of having examples like Serena and Venus is is huge. Just like like having the example of, of Althea and Arthur Ashe was huge to generations of players. Uh, and Serena is such, so transcends a sport that it seems like there'd be more people who would seek out tennis beyond like beyond the the, the groups that are trying to put more rackets in more hands. But um, but I don't know. I mean, it, it, these things—these things take a long time in the in the best of circumstances. And tennis is a is still a rich person's sport to some extent. Um, it's in it, it's—I don't want to say it's losing popularity in the U.S., but it's definitely not really gaining popularity in the U.S. So it it's it's not getting any more likely that some very athletically talented nine-year-old is going to, to try to become a tennis player. Um, so it, it makes it hard for these things to change. So I d I don't know. It's um it's it's definitely something to to be aware of and, and I don't know, try to try to fix when we can.
1: This is my aggregation and edit of a lot of people's reaction to one particular essay. Jeff, why do you hate Justine Ennon so much?
0: <laughs> um it's interesting one of the one of the questions you're aggregating from i did see and someone asked if if she was the player i hated the most uh, and i'm actually not sure she is so here's i, I know people had a, a strong reaction to that one and that's it might be the only sort of negative essay uh of the 128 and I, I've, I've said in a couple other contexts there's a few years in the 2000s that i wasn't paying a ton of attention to tennis and Henin's peak was there so i I don't have like an emotional feeling either way about Justine Hennen, and I'm either because of either pro or con. Uh, I don't have strong memories of her playing at her best, although I have charted a bunch of her matches from her peak. I won't say I had a hard time, but I had a, I had a relatively hard time writing about a lot of players from about 1990 to 2005 because I felt like I should remember them better than I did. I felt like I should... I was, I was imagining, like, what is the Joe Posnanski essay about this player? And the Joe Posnanski essay would be, like, I've talked to her. I've talked to her coach. I've talked to other sports writers. I have these great memories of her biggest moments when I was at the stadium and blah blah blah. And it would it would be great. And I can't write that. And I don't know enough to write that. I don't know the people to write that. So sometimes I was at kind of a loss of what I would write instead. And my my usual starting point was read everything I can, like go through all the Sports Illustrated articles um, about that person. Uh, try to find some profiles, especially if I can find them in their native language. And I did that with with Justine. And usually, after I did that, I might have read the equivalent of 50 to 100 pages of material. Some kind of story would emerge, and it would be pretty natural to write. And for Justine, the only story that was natural that emerged was that she pushed the absolute limits of gamesmanship, and she was not easy to like. Now I know that she has some very passionate fans who would disagree with both parts of that assertion and would probably give me all sorts of examples to the contrary, I know they're out there. Uh, That was not the story I gleaned from the contemporary sources. So when I wrote it, it didn't feel as negative as I guess it has been taken to be. I tried to be factual and fair, um, at least maybe not in choosing what I wrote about, but at least in writing about the, the anecdotes that I picked um I'm certainly not the only one who was struck by Justine in that way and some people feel a lot more strongly emotionally than than I do so I'm not even sure she's the one I most dislike, but that is the story that I gleaned from the research that I did about her
1: okay I was thinking of letting you off the hook when you mentioned she wasn't your least favorite at the start of the answer but you brought (laughs) it back to that at the end this isn't going to count toward the total but I just feel like you've been averaging three answers per question and there you (laughs) answered half. So who is it?
0: Layton Hewitt, I think Um, we've talked about this before, maybe even on the podcast that there's this weird tendency in tennis, probably in all sports, but more in tennis. I think that the older a player gets, if they stick around, they become a beloved veteran. Like there's, there's a few exceptions, but even by the end of his career, Jimmy Connors was beloved by many. And I mean, Jimmy Connors did very few things outside of playing tennis well that would earn him the love of fans. So to me, Hewitt is the other example like that. Like, Hewitt was a jerk in his prime years. Like, you can... I'm more willing to accept arguments in favor of Justine Hennon than I am in favor of Hewitt. And he did get better. He definitely got older. He became an Australian Davis Cup coach, which before him was like an automatic ticket to tennis heaven. But... I, I watched him grow on other people, and it just did not happen for me. So I, to me, Leighton Hewitt is always the, like, jerk kid from 2001.
1: Yeah, okay. I thought you you meant you might have had a a women's player you disliked more than Henin, but not surprised by that choice. Um, yeah, each of these answers could be its own episode, but moving on. <laughs> who is your favorite pre-World War One women's player and why? So presumably this player could also be on the list if she played long enough after, but um, do you have a favorite from, from that era?
0: Well, I, I have to apologize in part because I know that's a Charles Friesen question and I know that's an era he loves. And I know very little about pre-World War One tennis. Um, I mean, my it, the obvious answer for me is Mala Mallory, who was in the tennis 128 because she played so well for so long after 1920. I mean, she's an eight-time U.S championship champion, and she's originally from Norway, so, I mean, what's not to like? Um, the other the other answer, though, and someone I'd love to research more, um, I would happily read a biography of her if it existed, is May Sutton Bundy, who was the first American woman to win Wimbledon and um, multi-time US champion, and she came back after, I think she had four kids, one of whom went on to win the Australian Championships in the 40s. Um, she had four kids. Came back. I don't think she won the U.S. title again after that, but she played very competitively, mostly in California. And one of the maybe the first year that Mala Mallory was in the states, um, she took a trip to California and they played three exhibition matches against each other. Both of them were known for having the biggest forehands of their day. And one of the newspaper descriptions I read of one of their matches was just like they were just like standing in the back, their backhand corners and slugging forehands at each other and like. That that's pretty far down the list from the match of the century. But that's on the list of things I'd like to see is two women in 1919 in California, just like wailing away at each other's forehands. That sounds amazing.
1: Hitting inside out forehands, it sounds like.
0: Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if they were literally in, in the corners like you, you can imagine Federer doing now. But I mean, they, they were definitely cheating to to make sure they would predominantly hit forehands.
1: I can now imagine Federer doing that. I I haven't seen him doing that much lately. Which tennis era did you most enjoy researching and writing about? It sounds like it wasn't the 90 to 2005 (laughs) women, but which one did you most enjoy?
0: The the first thing that comes to mind is pre-World War II. I mean, everything pre-World War II, especially women, um, because I feel that that's the most most lost or most forgotten era, because really, like... If you asked 100 tennis fans to name a pre-World War II women's player, and you took Will's and Langland off the table, then you're not going to get a lot of answers. Uh, but I also I, I might have to give the nod to to the post-World War II 1950s pro men's circuit because that isn't something I knew a lot about, and I, I think you you had a podcast with the guy who wrote wrote the wrote a book about that. I forget his name. Um, oh
1: yeah, me too.
0: Yep. And then, and there's another recent book and it seems like everything has ever been written about men's professional tennis before the open era. Like at the time, even now, it all talks about it like it's this mysterious shrouded time that's been forgotten by history. And in some way that's true and it's a little bit self-fulfilling, but also it was being heavily promoted. Like there's a ton of information out there and i I, I talked to my dad about this a little bit that he wasn't a huge tennis fan when he was a kid but he does he he was alert to sports news in the 60s and read the papers and sports illustrated and that kind of stuff and and the way he remembered it he he thinks of it as being like you you read a story about a, a a big tennis match and you wouldn't necessarily think of it as one or the other so i mean, wimbledon is wimbledon but outside of wimbledon if you read about Gonzalez versus Laver, that could be a big story. It just happened to be a pro match. So maybe if you were a sports writer, you really recognize the difference. Um, maybe if you were like an Eastern establishment rich tennis guy, then you definitely know the difference. But if you were just a fan um, and you knew, you know, Rod Laver won the Grand Slam two years ago, the fact that he's playing a big match in 1964 and 1965 doesn't really matter whether he's being paid or not for it. It's it's a big match and it's a big story, and I, I kept coming across these mentions. Like Bud Collins said it a lot that it was that it was played behind closed doors or the the the, <laughs> the, the dark the, the dark forgotten world of pro tennis. And I guess I can get to vent a little bit more here. To hear Bud Collins saying that drives me up the wall because he wrote the tennis encyclopedia, like he decided what went in the tennis encyclopedia. So if if he thinks it was forgotten by history, it's because he forgot it. Like, it's not that the information wasn't out there. It was definitely out there. There was long profiles of these guys in the New Yorker and Sports Illustrated and was reported in the New York Times. So I guess my point in venting through all that is that if you go looking, you can find out a ton about the rivalries, about the players, about the way they play, about the venues, everything. And to me, maybe 19, mid-1950s pro tennis um, came alive relative to what I knew before more than anything else. And that, I mean, that, that's really the fun part of all this. Like the, the, other, the other great example of that for me was when I stumbled on a few New Yorker articles from the mid-1920s about Elizabeth Ryan. And I knew Elizabeth Ryan was a great doubles player I knew the basics about her career and her records and all that, but I didn't know a lot about the person. And I came across these two New Yorker profiles and all of a sudden it was like, okay, I get it. I understand this person now. I mean, I get the story, I get the background, I get what she's like. I, I can see this writer really likes her. She's, she's charming, but she's fierce on the court. It's like, I mean, and she was playing a hundred years ago, but it's, it's like she's there with me and you don't get that very often from, 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 Anything that happened that long ago was
1: certainly not in tennis. Yeah, the whole forgotten thing is so funny because these, these names on the pro tour toward the end of the separation then came back into tennis. And so they were very much there and around. And then you also had Jack Kramer, who's like the most quoted person, maybe even still today about tennis history. So there's plenty of Jack Kramer not letting the pro era be forgotten. But moving on, we can't do an episode about each of these. Um what player would you most have liked to write an essay about but didn't get the chance to because they didn't make the list?
0: May Sutton Bundy is one. I mean she didn't make the list because she predated it, but I I mean I will write about her, something about her at some point. One name I someone asked about this ranking but it didn't it didn't make your random number cut was was Dick Savitt who was a a US player. I think he won Wimbledon in nineteen 19- fifty 50. I think he won the Australian Open one year, or no, Australian Championships one year, too, because he was in Australia to play the Davis Cup. And it's interesting for a couple reasons, a few reasons probably. One, he was a Jewish player when there weren't very many of them. Two, that became a bit of a, of a scandal, not that he was Jewish, but um, he was selected for the Davis Cup team, he had won Wimbledon, and then he didn't end up playing because Ted Schroeder, who's also in the, in the Tennis 128. He was around two. Ted Schroeder was always considered a very, uh, a, a player who could raise his game very high, even if he didn't play very often, even if the results weren't there. So normally someone who won Wimbledon would be automatically the number one player on your Davis Cup team. But I think Jack Kramer was around and Kramer and Schroeder were buddies. So Schroeder ended up playing at the expense of Savitt uh, because, I mean, one version is because people thought Schroeder was more likely to score an upset. Um, the other version is because someone in charge was anti-Semitic and Savit was Jewish. And I don't know enough about the uh, about the background to know the likelihood of either story. But there's, I mean, you don't get many stories like that in the history of the U.S. Davis Cup team. So I'd, I'd love to know more about that. And he ended up, Savat ended up retiring pretty early, but then he continued to win tournaments as um, as a weekend player. So he, he, he beat some pretty good players throughout the fifties when he was working a full-time job and not really training, not even, not even playing tournaments that often. He'd just show up sometimes and win the equivalent of like a 250. So you don't see very much of that either. So I'm fascinated by him too.
1: We have about 50 more questions in this section. (laughs) So I think given that that last question implied that you couldn't write an essay, because this player who turns out to be Savitt uh, wasn't um, was on the list. You certainly can now, and you can write essays about each of these other 50 questions as well, and we will yeah, yeah, yeah. happily read them. So there's your assignment. But I'm going to move on to a section on how others have reacted uh, to this series, and the first randomly selected question. Do you receive a lot of criticism? <laughs> This is written very understated. Do you receive a lot of criticism when fans think you've placed their favorite player too low? Less than I expected, actually.
0: And I was I was surprised by how little I heard when I had Nadal at number eight and Serena at number six. Um, as far as I know, no one called me a racist for putting Serena at number six. I hope I'm not a racist, and certainly that didn't play any part in her being number six, low or higher as that is. Um, but I expected to hear that. I've been called a racist for things I've written about Serena before. And you have too, haven't you?
1: Uh, I don't know that exact word, but yeah, okay. having blind spots or... It is a risk
0: when talking about certain players in the Twitter era. But no, I what bothered me the most and why I ended up leaving Twitter for a while and not posting these on Twitter as much is, is that people would say things that were not even necessarily critical but were just kind of missed the point it's like if, if when you spend the time to write a 2000 word essay i mean i mean this is i know this is the world that twitter has created or even before twitter that people respond to the headline not the article and when the headline is number 8 rafael nadal like okay people have an emotional reaction to that i get it uh, I didn't do this because I was trying to, you know, troll the tennis world or instigate controversy or get clicks or any of that. I don't care at all about any of that stuff, but uh, but I can see why it would look like it does and why people would react like I was trying to, to get their goat, no pun intended. Uh, but I didn't get as much of that as I expected, so I was, I guess I was pleasantly surprised. It didn't feel pleasant when I did hear some of the things I heard about uh, about the players who were ranked lower, and I mean, honestly, like, I, like I've said before, I've, I mean, people will not stop talking about Vavrinka. Like, get mad about someone else, anyone else. Get mad about Elizabeth Ryan. That would be way, way more interesting to talk about. But no, it's been one year of non nonstop.
1: So <laughs> some of these questions may overlap with what you've just said, but uh, take them as you wish. Which player's placement generated the most controversy? And maybe the answer is Vavrinka. <laughs> yeah, some
0: combination of Vavrinka and Ishikori, and I get it. Um, I think I, I didn't expect it as much as I should have because in the immediately previous generations of the algorithm, Nishikori was actually even higher. I think at one point he cracked the top 100 and he ended up at 120 or 121. So I didn't really think about it. And I mean, I, I get it. Nishikori doesn't um, doesn't have the slams. He We think of him as injury prone. We, we think of him and his super long shower at the Olympics. I don't know. Well, The first thing that comes to mind with Kina Shikori is not greatness. It's not gutting out a five-setter in a, in a slam final. And that is what it is with Vavrinka. So I, I understand. Um, but that's that's definitely the big one. And you can tell when someone has only glanced at the list and they feel so strongly that they have to type something and hit publish somewhere. It's when, when they zoom in on those two. And I can't believe Wawrinka is behind fill in any one of, like, 30 names, or I can't believe Nishikori's on the list and fill in any number of 30 names isn't. So it, I think it's those two, and no one else is really close. I expected more pushback for hanchita Martinez, as I mentioned earlier, but very few people have mentioned her, at least relatively speaking.
1: Have you gotten any reactions from players themselves?
0: I haven't heard from any players. Um, I kind of expected that of, of the... 80s and 90s women, like Pam Shriver, who's active on Twitter, and Mary Joe Fernandez, and Zena Garrison, like, of that group, I thought maybe I'd end up on one of their radar. Or, I mean, maybe I have, but haven't heard anything from them. The closest I've come, which is pretty interesting, is uh, I heard from a guy whose dad uh, frequently played doubles with Bobby Riggs. So his dad and his uncle were were players on the circuit in, in the 40s, and one or both of them played Don Budge and they played Bobby Riggs around Chicago and Bobby Riggs was in Chicago. So he had a lot of great stories. Uh, We've, we've stayed in touch, but that's, that's as close as I've come to tennis 128 greatness. Oh, and I heard from a, I heard from a tennis hall of fame journalist, but that I don't have a list for that yet.
1: What has been the oddest reaction to a, I guess, a selection or an essay?
0: Well, the one that pops into my head, this isn't a single reaction, but, of the early essays, the one that I got the most feedback, positive and negative, on was, mostly positive, was Simona Halep, who was, I think, number 93. And I just remember seeing, logging into Twitter one day, seeing my mentions, and there were back-to-back responses where one person was like, oh my god, this is so great, I wasn't even sure she'd be on the list. And the next one was like, "Ah, oh, there's no way Simona Halep is only number 93. And like individually, they wouldn't have stood out, but back to back it's like okay maybe I hit the right the right median point of 93 for Simona Howell but that's I don't know I'm not sure if I got anything else anything particularly odd beyond some of the juxtapositions like that
1: yeah I mean so that kind of thing really just uh, can validate the whole project yeah uh, how many people do you think have read every word
0: I mean I'm guessing a pretty small number um, I, I don't I don't know how reliable my WordPress stats are, especially since there's a whole bunch of different ways people can get the essays. Um, And I know I have a whole bunch of email subscribers and you and many other people are subscribing in Feedly or something. Uh, I mean, I'm pretty sure my dad's read every word. He's a big fan. (laughs) Uh, Have you read every word? I have. Okay, so we're up to two. My sister claims she did, but I can't really believe it. I don't think she, she cared enough maybe about me but not about tennis for sure um and there are a few others and it's tough to know because um, i i think the people who are most interested are often the ones who are least likely to reach out like there, there's some exceptions to that of course like we've mentioned a couple times charles friesen who con- contributed a lot of these questions like he and i have been we've basically become friends via email because of this project as he's been He's been coming up with with topics to, to discuss from from the essays themselves. So I mean, I'm I'm getting feedback from him on a continual basis, and a couple of people like that. But I think a lot of the people who are are reading them all, it would never occur to them to you know, just to say hi. So I, mean, I know from my my traffic numbers there's no way to figure out how many people are reading all of them. But I mean, there's a a, a good number of people clicking on every essay and. Presumably, the people who keep clicking after all that time are clicking because they want to read it. So, I mean, I, I couldn't even guess with an order of magnitude. Like, I want to I, I joke there's, like, a total of eight people who've read the whole thing. But I'm guessing we're somewhere between 100 and 1,000. Um, not not a not a Joe Posnansky-esque number, but maybe better than some of my readership for uh, my more gnarly analytic stuff.
1: Well, you said the name Joe Posnansky, which you said earlier. And the next question is about him. It's also question number 54, and I'm gonna seize control from the random number generator from here on out, <laughs> and we're gonna we're gonna do 64 questions, which feels appropriate. Uh, starting with this one, 54. Have you heard from Joe about the project?
0: A little bit. Yep. Yeah. Um, yeah, he tweeted a link to Steffi Graf a few days ago. Um, we haven't been frequently in touch, but, but yeah, I know he's he's. I don't know, I'm, I'm guessing he's not reading every word since given how much he writes, there's no way he, ha, he has time, but, um, but I know he's, he's keeping up with it, but that's about as far as it goes.
1: All right. 10 more questions. This is all in the category now of your reactions to the project, not all literally your reactions, but what else are you up to? That sort of thing. So let's, so let's wrap with you, Jeff, <laughs> number 55. Um, has the 128 scratched an itch and can you now stop thinking about the best of all times as much?
0: Well, compared to a lot of the people that have strong opinions about this stuff, um, I'm not sure I, I did think about it a lot. I mean, I thought about it some when it came up or when, when one of the big three, went a slam and we would do a podcast or something, but I mean, in some ways, this is a debate that's been going on for 100 years. People have been talking about one of these people or some of these people being the best players of all time for as long as there's been tennis. But compared to baseball, since we just mentioned Poznański, um, there have not been a lot of greatest of all time lists. I mean, Tennis Channel did one about 10 years ago, and I think there's, there's been a couple of other ones over the years, but compared to baseball and to some degree other sports, going beyond the top 10 or so isn't really something that tennis fans do. And I think my interest in this was, was largely going, A, finding something to do with all this data I've been harvesting, and B, going deeper. Because it, like I mentioned, I think in the beginning, there's only so many players who even won one slam or two slams. So if you want to do the most the most basic, misleading, but simple ranking of the greatest players of all time, you take the slam winners, and you list them in order of how many slams they won. And you end up with a list of, I don't know, like 250 players. Some of them you have to throw out since they won like one Australian in the amateur era or whatever. You end up with a pretty short list of players. You know there's some you missed. There's like a 77-way tie at the bottom or something. I don't know if these numbers are close or right. But you have, you have a really unsatisfying list. And... I wanted to know what the list really looks like. And even if you disagree about individual rankings, I think it's, it's an important starting point to know that like, okay, Angela Mortimer is, I mean, maybe not a top 100 player, but in the conversation, definitely top 150, or some of these people who we don't think about very much don't, don't come up in these debates because they're so far off the top 10. Uh, it's, it seemed important to me to situate them back in the top whatever they are. And to separate them from the, you know, the teeming masses of, of zero slam and, and one slam winners. So, in one sense, it's 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 scratched that itch. I don't feel the need to come up with other algorithms or some anything like that. But in another way, like anytime you delve into the, I mean, not just history, but specifically with history, when you start diving into the history of something, like it's just rabbit hole after rabbit hole after rabbit hole. Like like my little answer about Dick Savage is stuff that I picked up reading about other players and if i you know spend a day or two re- researching dick Sabbath, i'm going to find out more about other players and i want to find out more about them and you know on and on and on it goes so uh, the the itches kind of gener- generate other itches which is probably a really bad metaphor for something but the, there will be more itches to scratch i'm
1: afraid well so- in that vein, bad metaphor notwithstanding, <laughs> what, what are what are your goals for tennisabstract. com and you know for the joint at the hip blog where you posted the essays?
0: As you know, I think Carl, I'm not sure if I've had any like overarching goals. I've just always been scratching my own issues as they come up, and I've I mean, my goal has always been to have as much data there as possible. So in not this year, but last year, my my big project was getting. The history of women's tennis as far back as I could, which ended up being about 1915. So I've got not complete, but pretty extensive results from 1915 through the beginning of the open era now. And there are a couple of sites online that have something comparable for men. Um, they have their flaws and their limitations. I mean, it's awesome that they exist. I just, it's impossible not to use a site like that, being who I am and not see how to make them better, whether it just means more usable or more complete or, or more whatever. And it's certainly a natural next step to start working on on men's data or to push the women's database back further. I'd like to do that eventually. I'd like to get at least some some subset of doubles results, maybe doubles finals. Um, I mean, I have, a, I have just an incredibly long list of, of potential data sets to add to, to player pages and other parts of Tennis Abstract. Uh, I'm not really sure how I'm going to balance that going forward with um, with writing in the vein of the Tennis 128. I mean, I'm not gonna do anything quite like this, certainly not in, in one year again, but I think I will strike more of a balance between historical research and writing and the the data side, whether that means just aggregating data or doing analytics, there'll be more history tilted, but not entirely sure what that'll end up looking like.
1: What advice would you give yourself in January looking back? So if you could today go talk to the Jeff of January 2022 embarking on this project, what would you say? I would
0: say you're going to send your first two drafts to Carl. Carl is going to respond with something very intelligent. You should listen to that and take that to heart. Do you remember what you told me?
1: I mean, I'm guessing I said something about creating like a tough, basically create shoes that you would have to fill, like a a template you would have to, you'd feel that you had to keep fitting. I don't, I don't know. What did I say?
0: Yeah, something like that. I don't remember the exact words, but I remember it is like, this seems like it's going to be a
1: lot. (laughs) Are you
0: sure you want to do this? That's not exactly how you said it,
1: but I yeah, guess. I mean, I guess like, <laughs> Somewhere in why between. don't you write 50 words about number 128? So when you write 400 about number one, it'll seem like you know, I, I didn't say that, but that's that's kind of how I would think of it, I guess.
0: Yeah. And the, the really painful irony about that is that those those last those first few essays, rather, they ended up being short by comparison. I think the first two were about 1,600 words a piece, and I ended up averaging 2,400.
1: Um, well, that's open. kind of what I meant. It was like, you're yeah. definitely going to have more material and more to say about the other player.
0: Yeah, so that that's one piece of advice I've given myself. I'm not really sure how what what the solution would have been because like, definitely I could have written less about some of these players, and m- maybe I should have in some cases. I don't know. Once once I hit the what the template kind of looked like, it would have felt wrong to... Have left players without filling at that template, or especially with some of the players who were notable for reasons outside their just their game. Like even to someone like like um, Jean Barotra, who was, I think, 126. Like he's mostly just famous for playing tennis. But he's one of the four musketeers. I can't just I can't just write him off with a short entry. That doesn't seem right. So I don't know. Is it I'm not sure what the compromise would have been and that I would have been ended up being happy with. I mean, I, I couldn't have stretched two years. I guess I could have just done a tennis 100 or tennis 64 or tennis 50 or something. But um, any of those things probably would have been been healthier. But uh, I'm, I guess the point is I'm not sure what advice I could have given myself then that I would have listened to. But that's what I would have, that's what I would have most usefully acted on if I would figured out how to do that, because this was a lot.
1: Yeah, I mean, there, there is the element of you could write shorter, but it would take longer. And also, if you were going to do that much research, that was probably a big chunk, or even the bulk of the time. So,
0: actually, it's hard. Yeah, I have a good answer. What I should have told myself was ignore autobiographies.
1: Interesting. Okay, go on.
0: So, yeah, I mean, it, it, I think for one thing, that's such an obvious source that it, it wouldn't have occurred to me to do that. I mean, for one thing. It, they have obvious limitations, like the fact that, that there's not much there's not much perspective there. You're not going to get you're not going to usually get like choice quotes from other players or um, a, a dispassionate description of their of their game or something. So for instance, I, would, I was much more successful getting information from other people's biographies. Like I'm not sure I learned anything about Pete Sampras from Pete Sampras's autobiography, but he has a section at the end of his book, A Champion's Mind, that was um, that was like capsule summaries of his rivalries with his main rivals. And those were great. They were just like half a page maybe of about maybe 10 or 15 players. And I got tons of great stuff from that about how he played them or a couple of things he remembered about that. So that was valuable. But I was just looking through this before we talked, and the shortest essay I wrote was about Virginia Wade. Which kind of surprised me i wouldn't have predicted that if i think she's super interesting and spent a lot of time on that one but it ended up being the shortest and i read her autobiography and i'm not sure i got anything out of it that i in in terms of what i could use there's probably some some value in having the background of her telling her own story but i think i could have gotten the same thing from a couple of magazine articles so maybe about halfway through the project i realized this and realized you get
1: so much more bang for the buck from maybe 50 pages of
0: contemporary magazine articles or snippets like what I mentioned from the Sampras book and you get from a 300-page autobiography. The other problem being that tennis autobiographies are almost universally bad. So it's tough to stay focused and read them. And I had a, a pace
1: to keep up with. So that worked against me too. But even just the fact that they weren't that valuable would be reason enough to skip them. And you didn't even go into the famous uh, Tracy Austin autobiography.
0: <laughs> no, I did. I did read that essay, but you're talking about the David Foster Wallace essay. Yeah. Yeah, I did read that essay, and I think I might have even used. I yeah, I think I I don't remember whether, whether I quoted that, but I used something from that. It, it is a good one, but yeah, I did yeah. I didn't look at hers. If you are interested in some i'm sure many of my listeners are interested in extremely bad uninteresting books about tennis history and internet archive has tons of these so i'm pretty sure that tracy austin autobiography you can dig up on uh, on internet archive and the chrissy ever books and martina's five books or whatever they're all there so if if you want to read what they said about themselves um they're there and i i guarantee you i did not use that material in my articles
1: <laughs> I had Tracy Austin on my show once, and I think my first question was a, or one of my first, my questions was about that essay, and she claimed to have never read it with a very stony face. So I touched on before this question of where active players might end up, and mentioned that that assumes that there will be an update or even regular updates. Will there be? Will do? Do you see yourself rerunning this? I I don't think that means necessarily rewriting any essays or even writing new ones for players who, who join. But is this is this fixed, or are you going to rerun this at some point?
0: Um, I will definitely not write the essays as they come up, um, as you say. But no, I might I might update the list. I mean, it seems like a pretty easy thing to do at the end of every year, because the the algorithm depends primarily on year-end ELOs. It's not really practical to do more than once a year. Um, so I might do that. I, I liked your idea. I think we talked about it on 30 Love, that and I was hesitant to do that because I like Beverly Baker Flight so much that I don't want to add anyone else to the list that I mean kicking her off. And I mean, heaven knows what would happen if I kicked off Stan Bavrinka too. I mean, I would, I would have to fear for my life. But, but you pointed out I do not need to take them off the list. The list can get longer. So I might do that. Um, we will see. I, I mentioned earlier that I have I need to regenerate the the final numerical rankings from some code I have. So if I can successfully do that, then, then it will be pretty straightforward to update the list every year. So maybe I'll do that. I'll probably do that.
1: Okay, we won't count it as a promise, but as a possibility. You mentioned the list could get longer. You also briefly said earlier, oh, maybe it would have been easier for me if I'd done a smaller number. Is there a different number you wish you'd done, or was it always going to be, had to be 128?
0: I mean, once, once 128 occurred to me, it kind of had to be 128. The the ridiculous thing is I, I decided from the beginning I wasn't going to do 100, and I felt like I was copying enough of Joe's concepts that I needed to do something a little different. And then I was thinking 101, and then he announced he's going to do the football 101, so I didn't do that. And, Back when I was doing test preparation, I wrote a book called GMAT 111, and that was an incredibly stupid idea. Um, I was originally thinking 100 or 101 about that, but people owned the domain names. I was like, hey, I'll write a book with 111 GMAT tips, and that was stupid. Uh, So I ruled that out, and then I was like, oh, what about... Wait,
1: was it stupid because the last 11 were really hard to come up with, or was it just (laughs) not a catchy number? It just wasn't catchy. I mean, it probably wasn't a great idea for a book. I I, I was... fairly successful self-publishing and
0: selling my math and verbal books. And I thought that I had, a, at that time, a pretty popular blog for people preparing for the GMAT. Um, so I had a pretty good funnel of people who were potential customers. And I thought, you know, I've had these two these two things that have sold pretty well. I should keep going. And yeah, the, everything about that one was, wasn't that successful, starting with the name. Um, But then I landed at 119, which I thought was funny because you could have a set that ended eleven nine. Like then I have a tennis 119, and think of how much that's funny. Yeah. Think of how much fun that would be to explain that all year. That would have been great. Uh, So I'm glad I didn't do that. And then when I got to 128, I was like, oh yeah, no problem. And the other problem is that, like I've said, I'm more interested in filling out the, the the back half of the list, and those are the stories that I don't know as well. And some of the players I'm more interested in, like like I mentioned, I, I can't imagine taking Beverly Baker flights off the list. So I needed to go to 128 for her. So once I saw who those players were, that I would have been cutting off with a shorter list, and it, it would have been tough. I would have lost Mala Mallory. I mean, that makes the whole thing worthwhile to keep Mala Mallory. So I would have lost Rosie Casals. Yeah, I had to go 128. Might not have been healthy, but. I think, that, I think it, this was the number that was meant to be.
1: Well, I mean, clearly it should have been 256, and it's pretty lazy of you to only write 128 essays in a year.
0: I'm leaving the other 120 as an exercise for the reader. And, <laughs> and, and when I say the reader, I mean you, Carl.
1: An extra difficult exercise because we still don't have the v not negative two version of what the numbers are.
0: Right. Um, but I mean, I can tell you some of the players are. You can get started while I work out the list.
1: Okay. They consider them almost done. How much will you miss doing the 128, if at all?
0: For a long time, probably not at all. I might be anticipating the next question, so I think this is not a list, but this has taken every bit as much time as you think it has, um, and possibly more. Like I, I I saw some someone asked how much time it took, so I, I tried to kind of back of the envelope, work out how much time it took, and I'm... Given that I have a job and have kids and occasionally sleep and even more occasionally shower, and I'm—I I don't know how it happened. Like I, I, mean, I think I've watched like three hours of TV and movies in the last six months. It's—I, I can't remember the last time I saw a friend in person. Like there have been some sacrifices involved in doing this, so um, I'm ready to not be doing it, but. That said, I mean, I'll probably keep doing it, just not at the same rate. You know, I have to figure out some kind of research project that scratches the same itch to use your or the questioner's phrase, uh, just with not quite the same killing pace.
1: I think there's a good chance the questioner heard you use that phrase on some podcast episode earlier and repeated it back to you, and now it's yours again. Oh, God. Um, Now it'll never die.
0: (laughs) Just like the thing that's causing the itch.
1: (laughs) And the itch itself. How I think we we covered pretty early on in this episode, how you feel about the algorithm and the ranking, but the result is so much more than that. And so much of the time is the essays and and the research I went into it. How how proud are you of the overall result? Tennis 128.
0: I'm pretty proud. I was, I wanted to ask you actually, Carl, do you think that the writing got better over the course of the year? I'm not, I'm not, I'm not fishing for compliments at all.
1: If, you, if i thought you were then i would have said the opposite of what you wanted to hear right at the start i'm that's, trying to give you a more thoughtful mind. answer yeah i i think i think so i mean it's so i thought the writing was very strong at the beginning i think one of my first pieces of feedback was like i think you're trying to do something very difficult here with the writing here would be a more straightforward way to do it and you were like yeah no i know what i'm doing i want to do it this way i'm like okay cool i'm not going to give that feedback again because <laughs> I mean, I think yeah, most was, editing feedback should be like, do you realize you're doing this? OK, as long as you realize it and you knew what you were doing. So um, yeah, I mean, I think was you were from the Jim
0: Courier essay, which I'm still I'm still not confident worked out that great. So if people didn't like the Jim Courier essay, you should know that's my fault. Carl tried to fix it. <laughs> I, I
1: think I mean, if I were trying to write 128 essays of similar length and format, all about individual tennis players who are near the best of all time, I probably would want to try out lots of different things too. And, you know, not have it sort of feel like the same style each time. And I think you succeeded. Like, I mean, I didn't, obviously like some essays more than others, but with all of them, I was like, Oh, Jeff is trying something here, but he's still giving me all of the like information he thinks I ought to know, but he's also not overloading me with stuff, especially towards number one that I probably already do know, or that, is extraneous for labor where it wouldn't have been for number 100. Yeah, I mean, I think your challenge got harder too, right? Because you were, whatever you wrote about, um, many of the first 30 or so you wrote, I would have, would be the first I'd be encountering it. And then for the last 30 or so, for any fans of tennis history, like you were gonna try to give them something different, but also not let them down by not hitting the really important part. So anyway, yeah, that- long answer, yes, I think it got better.
0: One thing that really stuck with me, um, there was a review of Posnansky's book. I think it was Lee Montville who wrote this in the Wall Street Journal. And I mean, Lee Montville is a another like very veteran, very skilled baseball journalist. I think he, didn't he write a Babe Ruth biography or something like that? Like, he's extremely knowledgeable about yeah. And I think he even said, like, these are my qualifications before he gave his compliment, where he said, like, every single one of these essays, I learned something new. And when i read that i was like a holy crap and b that's a good goal to have like i, I and that's easy when you're writing about beverly baker flights because no one's heard of beverly baker flights but yeah when you get to labor or especially that that's why that's why i was particularly anxious is too strong but i i was concerned how it would go writing about serena and the big three because yeah what am i going to say about serena or federer or Djokovic or nadal that that any one of my new readers doesn't already know, and I'm not sure I succeeded for them, but I, I feel like I probably succeeded with most of the rest. And, and at least I succeeded with myself. Like I, my only my only real way of of guessing what you or any other reader would know is what I knew before. And in in many cases, like I would, in, in certainly with someone someone like Serena or Venus, I went back to what people were writing about them in the late '90s and early aughts, and like I, d- I didn't remember or maybe ever know some of that stuff. So I mean, a super fan probably would, but I learned a lot and passed on a lot of that stuff. So I would guess like, any, any reader who went through all 128, maybe they had a few players where they, they were big fans of that player who knew their careers really well. And I didn't say anything new, but maybe uh, maybe I gave you something new about 120 of them. And that's probably about as, as much as I can manage with the with, uh, time and resources and skill that I have at my disposal.
1: And you have data at your disposal. And, you know, one thing that I was curious about from even before the first essay, but then after the first few was how, what balance you're going to strike between you have this incredible resource that you've created or prompted the creation of and helped create the match charting project. You have all the projects to get the historical data uh, for match results, especially for women's tennis. And like how much of the essays would fit your brand of being very analytics heavy and how much would be more qualitative historical or just you know more based on match results and i think that was another thing where it's not that you got better but i was just like very happy with how the balance worked out and also how it was very different for certain essays like some essays had very different styles because they were more stats driven but it wasn't the majority of them
0: yeah i wasn't sure how that would pan out either i think i expected the contemporary players to be more steady than they ended up being which i I mean i think it I think I made the right choice by the end. But if you'd asked me what the Djokovic essay would look like back in January, I would have expected it to be even heavier towards statistical stuff. Um, and I will say that, with, especially with women players before the Open era, like, it might not have been obvious how much work, not necessarily mine, but how much recent research went into just having the basic, uh, basic stats about their career or like the, how, many, how many matches they won in the rest season or what their peak elo was or how many three-setters they won or whatever, like that is some hard-won information. Uh, that was that was not just sitting in a book somewhere for me to unearth. Like I or someone else spent a lot of time digging up the details to, to get there. And sometimes, sometimes it felt it felt like I was kind of wasting it. I'd be like, oh, I, I know how much work it took to get this one fact, and then it would be like one sentence close to the end of an essay, like, oh, oh, that was so hard, (laughs) but eh, I mean, I'm not going to, I'm not going to like highlight it and put it on top just because it took a lot of effort. So, um, it would have been a lot harder to do if it wasn't there. That's for sure.
1: Yeah. I mean, you, you arguably couldn't have done the project at all because you wouldn't have known how to rank some of the, some of the players. So, uh, this is like the reward for all that, that work that you and everybody else was doing on that project. This, is, this was suggested by a few people as a question, but also, I think, is self-suggesting by the project being, being inspired by a book project. W- will you publish the results and essays in a book?
0: Uh, probably not. There's no plans to do that. Posnansky's book was a, quote, surprise bestseller. And I joked to somebody that mine might be a surprise, not financial disaster, if I chose to produce it. Um it's just so long, <laughs> and and there's only so many rewards for publishing niche sports history books. So, I mean, a lot a lot of the rewards are things that I don't care about. Like, even if it was moderately financially successful, it wouldn't matter a lot to me. Like, I wouldn't be able to quit my job or something because I was, you know, a best-selling tennis history author. Um, I don't. it would open a lot of doors for me that i care about opening so the way i feel about it right now it's like anybody who wants to read this stuff can go read it sounds like a lot of people are finding it recommending to their friends reading one and deciding to read more and that's all great and that's kind of to the extent that i was worried about what other people would think about it that's what i wanted to happen and that's what's happened so i mean if if somebody out there is an agent or a publisher or they know someone who is, and they really feel passionately this ought to happen and they can think of why I should too, then I'm open to hearing about that. (laughs) But That's a really high bar I realize. So I, I don't anticipate that happening and that's why, but you know, you never know. It could happen.
1: I'll keep that spot on my shelf open for you. Um... Well, I'll send you a,
0: my dad printed them all out, put them in four binders. So a, I'll send, I'll send you that photo. (laughs) So you'll know how much, room on your shelf you need to save, and B, don't do that.
1: Was it double-sided?
0: I don't think so, but I don't know. He only showed me the the binders on a shelf.
1: This is no, question number 63, the second to the last we'll do. And before we do it, I think this is an appropriate time because of the nature of the question to also thank all the people who inspired questions or directly submitted questions to you or me or on message boards for all to see. Um, I, I'm not sure this is really comprehensive because these, some of these questions probably covered things people have said on message boards or tweet threads I didn't see. Uh, but I'll I'll take my best shot at these names. Jeff, please correct me and also add anyone I'm missing who helped with the questions for this episode because we really did get a lot of help. Uh, Charles Friesen, we mentioned, does he pronounce it Keys? I forget. Case. Case. I met him, but i it's just not how it looks to me as an American. Odin FK, that's maybe a Twitter name. That's a Twitter uh, handle, yeah. Mark Poster, I hope that's how he pronounces it. I hope so too. Uh, ben Rothenberg, Petter Vets we mentioned, Simon Hurst, Kemortan Valeriu maybe, uh, Tony P. Blengino, Venu Satuluri, Jonathan Steger, Khaled on Twitter, Sam on Twitter, Sam was a big fan and a uh, uh, very engaged reader of the series. Steven on Twitter, Jasmine on Twitter, TNUY underscore X on Twitter, Hawk of GP also Twitter, Blaovic on Twitter, RDA on Twitter, OW on Twitter with a series of questions. And on the British tennis message board, John H comes home. Uh, was there any major omission who submitted questions? That, you know. Well,
0: big thanks to Carl Bialik for filtering all those things and coming up with questions of his own. And I, I, I get the sense that was a pretty substantial task I asked you to take on to make sense of this question list and manage this episode. So thank you.
1: Uh, it was fun. And I mean, I would have spent that time coming up with my own instead of collating these better ones. I did add a few. Um, the question itself, uh, which I think we've already included some of the names you'd want to thank, but it was just someone asked who would you like to thank for support in this journey, and you just thanked me. You don't have to say me, but uh, <laughs> anyone. We, I mean, I know we didn't say Jeff McFarland's name. I think I know he's he was on the podcast earlier. Is so there anyone else you'd like to thank?
0: Yeah, and, and I'm glad you mentioned Jeff because he he and was the only other person besides you who I sent drafts of the list to. And I probably should have paid a little more attention to what he said too, because I think he warned me about some of the the rankings that would rile people up the most. I mean, it wouldn't have made me change anything, but it would have been nice to internalize that warning a little better. But no, he gave me some great feedback about uh, how the algorithm could evolve that I I took into account and um, I the people who stick out are the ones who were engaged with the project all along like i mentioned charles already and you mentioned sam on twitter um, the crew on the the british tennis message board were following along every single step of the way and i mean i hope i, I hope i know they were enjoying it as well but i i just want to say that it made such a huge difference to know that people were we're reading every one and keeping up and in a few cases rooting for me. Like I, I know that most people are, are stuck on the, the ranking aspect of this, but there's definitely an ultra marathon aspect of this where like I was I was limping into the finish line like 14 and a half hours of running after I started where like it's not a matter of when I finished or even how I finished, but the very fact that I finished it all. And a, a few of the people who were following along seemed to understand that very well. So it was nice to have that. Um, I mean, definitely a big thanks to Joe Posnansky because not only is, did, did he directly inspire this project, but I've been such a huge fan of his writing for so long. And like, whenever I didn't know how to write one of the essays, especially early on, I would just think like, okay, what, does what the Joe Posnansky version of this essay look like? And then I wouldn't do that because I can't, but it would at least give me some ideas. Um, uh, so, so those are great. I mean, there's a whole crew of people over the last decade, um, centered around the, the tennisforum.com blast from the past section that have been collecting and, and collating and and editing women's tennis results and that's that's the only reason that I'm able to have a database of women's tennis results going back to world war 1 and that's it's just unbelievable to me that so much of that work was already done by people who you know looked up newspapers and annuals and literally typed them all in like name after name after name, just typing them in. And it's an enormous amount of work that we all should be be thankful for, and I certainly am. So I'm sure I'm forgetting people, but those are the ones that come to mind.
1: Well, I just remembered as you were going through the names, there are Italian translations of many of these, right?
0: Oh my gosh, yes. Ado is, um, oh, I forget what his last milestone was, but he's he's translated a huge number of articles, not just of mine, but other, other analytics folks as well. And uh, I suspect that the that Italian tennis fans do not appreciate him nearly as much as they should. But he's he started in on the tennis 128 translations as well. He's doing the the current and recent players first. He might tell you that that's all he's doing, but he often says things about how he'll only he'll only do a little bit and then he ends up doing like a thousand. So he probably won't do a thousand of these since there's not enough. But Uh, But I always tease him like he'll he'll tell me, I'm not going to I'm not going to go through and chart every match on this list. I'll just do a couple. And then like three months later, he's done 50 of them. So I I think we'll see a lot more translations from ADO. And I I do really appreciate every one of them.
1: Yeah, it's an amazing resource. All right. Last question for this podcast. Question number 64. Uh, You've touched on it a bit, but what will you do next?
0: Okay, well, I'm soliciting help, advice, suggestions, votes. I don't know. I have a few ideas that I'll run by you. I I have this thought now that you know I I wrote this giant book-like thing in one year, and I always kind of wondered. I would see people who had jobs in tennis or journalism and be like 10% jealous because I always wondered like, what if I could give all of my time to tennis or tennis analytics? What would happen then? Because I've always kind of wedged it into other things and i'm still wedging it in but i do kind of know <laughs> I, I did basically spend my whole year doing this so okay i can produce a pretty substantial thing that's hopefully good over the course of a year so maybe i'll do the same thing next year so here's a few ideas you can tell me what you think you don't have to you know answer at lengthen out but i'll anyone else who's listening who wants to let me know how I, I welcome your suggestions or votes one is just to say you know damn it there's too many bugs too many missing things on tennis abstract you need to just fix it so i need to spend 2023 to making tennis abstract work right so that's definitely a year-long project or more that's one two would be to focus on building out the men's data and ultimately have year-end elo ratings and all that stuff and um, build on what tennis archives and some other sources have done and build out a full men's database That would equal what I have for women, so that's two. Um, Number three would be another book-like project, and my first thought—I've been making a list all year long of people who uh, I could potentially write about. I mentioned a couple when you asked, but I think I've got a list of maybe 50 possible topics, and I'm sure there's lots and lots more. So one possibility would just be to keep going and it wouldn't be 128 it might be 28 <laughs> maybe that's more realistic but let's say 25 to 40 or 50 so one book-like project would just be another collection of, of player profiles like that uh, another idea would be to take that sort of concept but make it more of a narrative so one idea i had of, among many would be to To do like a history of the u.s davis cup team and it would be built around uh, around profiles of many of those players the ones who didn't crack the tennis 128 and the davis cup was such a huge part of tennis and the u.s team was always in the mix pretty much until at least the the early 80s and that would be a coherent story that would allow me to continue to profile some of these interesting players and the last one so this is 20 this will be 2023 the, it's the 50th anniversary of everything that happened in 1973 which is my my brilliant math skills at work um 1973 was a huge year in tennis there was the wimbledon boycott there was the the battle of the sexes it was kind of the rookie year for chris evert um jimmy connors Bjorn borg uh it was the first year that davis cup was, again, open to contract pros. So it was the first year that Laver and Rosewall and a lot of those guys could go back to Davis Cup, which mattered a lot to them. Um, So it was like the first real open Davis Cup. That was a huge deal. So you can argue whether it was the pivotal season in open tennis history, but it feels like one of the main ones. So I've considered doing some kind of like 1973 diary or some series of, of essays going through 1973 uh, as it happens 50 years later. So, those are my five main ideas. I guess the sixth idea would just be to sleep more or spend more time with my kids. I don't know, but that seems unlikely. So, the first <laughs> five are my are my leaders in the clubhouse, um, and I'm interested in what people think about them.
1: All right. So th- make sure that I can recap this. There's fixing bugs, making the site work better. That's one. Uh, make tennis
0: abstract great again. That's the, the slogan.
1: Okay. And then there was doing the same thing with uh you know older men's results that you've done with women's, correct? Yep. And the extending the concept of tennis 128 but maybe doing a more manageable number of additional essays in that format, 25 to 50. Uh there's doing something like that kind of writing, but more with one coherent narrative around a theme, perhaps Davis cup. And then there's like continuing to write essays about tennis history, but about one season in particular 1973, it being 50 years before 2023, and perhaps like timing the essays to the time of the year that the essay is loosely about in 73. Is that a fair representation of the five choices?
0: Yeah, definitely.
1: So I know there are a lot of people who are going to be excited to hear about these and you maybe you'll solicit feedback in other ways as well. Are you asking me what I think? Sure. I mean, I don't know if you... Different, well, I don't know if you deliberately listed them in this order, but I think the fifth one is the winner.
0: Yeah, I'm leaning that way too.
1: I also think... I mean, the bugs thing sounds as a user great, but sounds as a doer... Sort of like you were saying, it doesn't sound that fun to try to recreate... That the the data and the for the final rankings like so you might not do it for a while like it just doesn't sound like you'll enjoy it or um they'll be very motivated to do it. I mean I know you're a great programmer and there'll be some fun aspects to it but it's sort of like backward facing.
0: Well, and a lot of this, it's stuff that I've been putting off for a long time, so the fact that I've been putting it off is a good sign of how much I want to do it.
1: Yeah, I think any of the other four sound interesting. The men's one, I just feel like. You getting involved, figuring out how to incorporate into your site, I guess eventually it'll take a lot of your, your work, but there are a lot of communities of people interested in that sort of thing, and maybe Tennis 128 can galvanize more people. It doesn't have to be your project. That's true. Yep. So the yeah, other I three are writing, and the, the year one just sounds very nicely thematic if you're looking for something to do for a year.
0: Yeah, the main, I mean, for me, there would be research involved, but building out a men's tennis database going back further would be more about just making it accessible. I think a lot of it is out there, but like tennisarchives.com is a tremendous site with a huge amount of great data and it is not very user-friendly, like it, it especially if you're used, to it, if you like the way that tennis abstract works, which naturally I do since I built it the way it worked the way I wanted it to, um, you won't be as happy with some other sites that are with results in tournaments so like there were times where i was working on essays for for pre-open era men and like I, i wanted nothing more than to just search for their tennis abstract page and browse through their results like i would a woman of the same era and you just can't do that on any other websites so even if it was just the organizational aspect then um That would have a lot of value for me personally but it is also as i know from working on the women's stuff last year it is an enormous task so yeah there's a strong case against that too
1: yeah i mean it would would create great value for a lot of people but um I, i i think it's exciting that you've you've got more writing in you and you want you want to do more of it so it seems worth pursuing that
0: okay good to hear thank you
1: uh, I was surprised you didn't list like going really deep on one or a couple of players. Um, I mean, maybe the answer is that you've found that for the players you'd be most interested in, you're interested because you've read a lot about them, which means there's a lot about them already. So maybe it's, it's not worth it.
0: Well, I only gave you my top five.
1: <laughs> okay.
0: Okay. <laughs> so no, I, I think I even mentioned to you once before I was mulling a Helen Jacobs biography and I, I mean, it's it's on the back burner, but I, I think that would be interesting. I mentioned earlier, like I had my little rant against autobiographies, and I, I think this is true of all sports. I think it's particularly true of tennis. There just aren't very many good tennis biographies, and that's not a knock on most of the people doing them. Um, the best tennis books, I think, are ones about rivalries, so they end up being dual or triple biographies like like Marshall John Fisher's "A Terrible Splendor about Tilden and Budge and Von Cram, and um, John McPhee's levels of the game is Ash and Clark Gravener, and um, there's a few examples like that. And when you try to write a whole book about a single player, if that player is not Bill Tilden, I don't think there's enough material for a whole book. So you end up either really padding even Tilden, you end up really padding it with results and then it gets kind of boring, or you end up padding it with... Um, sort of life and times kind of stuff so there's a recent alice marva biography that i i enjoyed it's a good book um it's just it didn't feel like it needed to be a whole full-size book there was a lot about the era that i didn't think was all necessary um so i don't know that that's wrong maybe that's the better way of writing that book for its audience but for me i want the 100 page version so I would struggle to write the 300-page version of a book that I want the 100-page version of. Um, and also, with someone like Helen Jacobs, there's archival material out there, and I don't think I'm going to go spend a month at a library with uh, my current situation in life. So that that's not going to happen. But um, but yeah, it's definitely in the cards. And and Helen Jacobs is one. Even Tilden, like there's a recent biography and there's been a few. But boy, if there's one player worth really diving into and getting right, it's it's him. So, um, yeah, that's a little further down the list. You find some things like that.
1: Yeah. And I, I didn't use the word book because if you're not thinking of times 128 as a book, you don't have to think of a longer look at a player as a book either, but, um, yeah, could be that length or that ambition without all the, the times of the life and times. All right. I, this is around when we said we'd wrap up. It's probably, already comfortably the record length for (laughs) Tennis abstract podcast episode uh do you have any is there anything we didn't get to any final thoughts or you want to wrap it up here
0: well i know there's a ton of stuff we didn't get to so i'm i'm excited to to see the full list of questions and maybe i'll i'll put together some some short answers to those in print not for a while i'm taking a week or two off here but um but i have all of you who submitted questions thank you as carl said and even if you didn't hear yours
1: i'm
0: not throwing it right in the trash so keep an eye on on the blog it'll probably be the australian open or after the australian open before i i get set in any new projects but maybe by then i'll be ready to get going again so so yeah keep check in there and maybe we'll do more than three podcasts next year i don't know do we have that much do we have that much to talk about do you think
1: well, yeah, as you said, there's like a, another hundred questions just about this project. And it sounds like <laughs> I think you just committed to doing at least six projects that you're going to do all of them, right? That was what you were saying for next year.
0: Yeah, I'll take this in hand as the nominal host here and say thank you all for listening. Uh, this has been episode 116 of the 10th Abstract Project. Abstract podcast rather thank you all for following the tennis 128 project throughout the year those of you who haven't read all 128 essays there are there's another week in 2022 so you know you've got some work to do and um, happy holidays and all that and we'll see you next year